By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. You are not the main character of your story. The reader is the main character. The moment you realize that, you realize that you are in the business of serving the reader. People don't buy the asset, right? No one buys a book. What the person's buying is an answer to a question. Hello, and welcome back to Deep Dive, the weekly podcast where every week it's my immense privilege to sit down with authors, academics, entrepreneurs, and creators, and other inspiring people. And we talk about how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools we can learn from them to help them build a life that we love. What you're about to hear is an interview between me and Nicholas Cole. And the main theme of what we're gonna talk about is how you can make money on the internet through online writing. You can make money as a writer. It's just, you need to differentiate between are you saying, I want to write this, and then you go out into the world and go, who's willing to buy it? Or are you starting in the opposite direction and go, what do you need? What question do you have? And can I provide it? He's done basically everything as it relates to making a full-time income from the internet through writing. And so in the video, we break down how to get started with this, how anyone can make money writing on the internet, how to build an audience through writing on the internet, and lots of like super tactical stuff further in the episodes. Anyone can become a writer. All of these skills are easy to learn and it's possible. You just need to invest the time to learn some of these skills and put them into practice. Now, before we get into this episode, I've got a very quick announcement, which is that I'm launching a Telegram community for the podcast. Now, I'm going to be honest. Initially, the reason for starting this podcast was quite a selfish one in that I wanted to learn from cool and interesting people and apply their insights to my own life. And it's just generally easier to hang out with people if you invite them onto your podcast rather than if you just want to have a chat with them. But over the last 18 months of running this podcast, it's grown ridiculously fast. And actually, we've had so many messages and YouTube comments and emails and Instagram DMs and stuff from people talking about how much value that you guys have gotten from the episodes as well. And so so we're planning to change direction a little bit in that instead of me just treating these conversations as a personal therapy session with the guests, which we might still do a little bit of, I actually want to learn more about you guys who are listening to the podcast or watching the podcast and understand what are the things that you would like to see from the podcast. And I really want to better understand what challenges you're going through, what struggles you're going through, so that we can then kind of tailor the guests and tailor the questions to that. So that's why we are starting up this completely free Telegram community. If you hit the link in the show notes or in the video description, wherever you're watching or listening to this, you'll be able to sign up completely for free. It's always going to be free you will never have to pay a penny. The group is called The Deep Divers, which I think is kind of funny. And it's basically a group where I'll be posting some of the behind the scenes stuff from the podcast. But also as we get new guests coming on, I'll be asking in that group if you guys have any specific questions for the guest so that can help inform the direction of the interview. I'm also going to be posting a few polls and questionnaires and surveys in that group. So if you're interested in kind of sharing more about you and about your life, then you can do it through that group. And then again, that'll just help us figure out how do we best make this podcast as value add for you guys as possible. And we're also going to be using the Telegram group to give away some freebies. Like for example, often authors on the podcast will come and they'll gift us like 50 of their books, for example. I don't need 50 copies of, <laughs> of an author's book, but it's the sort of thing that we can absolutely send to people around the world completely for free. Anyway, if that sounds good and you'd like to join the community, then do hit the link in the podcast show notes or in the video description, wherever you're seeing this or listening to this. And now let's get on with the episode. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. We're, this is it. We're this kicking is it. it off. This is going to be so fun. Like we've, we've known each other on the internet for the past like one year plus, I think. And now yeah. you're here in London on Thanksgiving break. And here we are on Thanksgiving recording this. I'm so, so I'm so happy we made it yeah, happen. Thank you so much for coming down. Yeah. Um, I was thinking like you are the kind of, I guess, a professional at making money through online writing, I guess. <laughs> like how, how, how do you introduce yourself to people these days? If someone asks like, what do you do? What, what do you, what, what do you say to that? I like to say 
I use language to change how people think. Okay. So I used <laughs> I used to get paid. I, I frame it this way. I used to get paid as a ghostwriter mm. and as a ghostwriter or earlier on as a content writer, you get paid to write words. So someone's like, I'm going to pay you to write 800 words. I'm going to pay you to write 1200 words, 1500 words. And it took me a long time that to look long time to realize that great writers don't get paid to write lots of words. They get paid to write two or three words that then dictate the direction of the 800 words, the 1500 words, the 3000 words. So now I focus on using language to change how people think, writing two or three words that changes the direction of which way the wind is blowing. Oh, okay. Definitely want to dig dig more into that. Um, I was thinking we would talk about kind of a handful of different ways to essentially become a millionaire through online writing or through writing of some sort. And given that you've done this in various kind of uh, fields, I feel like you'd be the perfect kind of expert expert on the topic. Um, but before we go there, you you have a fantastic book, um, The Art and Business of Online Writing, which I've actually ordered a physical copy on Amazon, which is arriving tomorrow because we're showing it off in a video like on Friday. Oh, cool. So that'll be cool. Um, oh, thanks for supporting the arts. No, it's all good. I've been, I've been recommending that book to so many people when they ask questions like, should I start a blog? And hey, I want to make money on this on internet thing, but I don't really want to show my face on YouTube. I want to become a writer. Um, and I just send that book to a lot of people. But mm. in that book, you talk about your origin story which is like a World of Warcraft pro gamer <laughs> or something. Yeah. I, I had a World of Warcraft phase during Wrath and Cataclysm as well. Really? And But like, I and I, I always like loved the idea of being in a raiding guild, but I could never make it work with mm. like my mom calling me down for dinner as a freaking 16 year old and then having to leave the raid and all, all, all of this kind of stuff. So what was your background in World of Warcraft? We, how, did, how did the origin? We had the yeah. same story. <laughs> we had the, first of all, Horde Alliance. Oh, I was Horde. Okay, good. Yeah. That's the right answer. Um, yeah, I was, I, you know, same thing. I was a really hardcore gamer as a teenager, and I didn't know that I had celiac disease till I was 18. So I was really sick growing up. And I also wanted, I had dreams of playing in the NHL and fractured my spine when I was 14 and then tried to come back to the sport, fractured it again when I was 17. So those two things, you don't have a lot of other time or options. So I just sat in front of my computer and I got really, really good at World of Warcraft. Right. And uh, yeah, by the time I finished high school, I was, you know, competing at a pro level. And a lot of the guys that are at the top of the space now are guys that I remember playing against 10 years ago. I was just a little too early, you know, in 2000, let's see, I was 17, 2007. So that was the very, very beginning of the esports trend. Oh, okay. So I missed that boat by like 18 months. Yeah. That was like end of Burning Crusade, wasn't it? Because Wrath came out 2008, yes. I yeah. think. Yeah. So yeah. So you were, so you were, were you like on the rating side or on the PVP side? No, like, all the your... PVP. Really? Yeah, same oh. thing. I never had time. My parents, you know, they were always like, you have to sit and have dinner with us. Yeah. You can't raid on school <laughs> nights. So I would just PVP and I would just compete against all the best players in the world. So where did the interest in writing come in? Because like journalism, fiction, like you must have had some sort of background in writing. Yeah, I've just always had it. I think mm. I, my earliest memory is my mom signed me up for a poetry club when I was in fourth grade. And I don't know that I wrote anything fantastic, but there was something really cool about that. And I don't know why, like words just always stuck. Mm. I was not good in math, was not good in science. I really struggled in school, but writing always made a ton of sense. Mm. Okay. So you're you're at university, you're doing the you're side hustling as a music producer, you're side hustling side hustling as a barista while do while doing your degree. What happened next in the story? I sat in my last class 
uh, of college. And the very last class I was taking um, from this professor was kind of a, he was locally famous in Chicago. He was an author and he had written this book called uh, Hairstyles of the Damned. His name is Joe Mino. And I loved him as a teacher. He was great. And in the city, everyone was kind of like, oh, my dream is to write a book like him. And he kind of embodied the the goal of being a locally famous writer, at least to me. And we're sitting in the very last class and he's like, okay, everyone, you're about to graduate. I'm going to tell you how to become a successful writer. So we all pull out our notepads and our notebooks. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is what it was all about. I put in my time. You're going to give me the answer. And he's like, okay, here's what you do. You spend a year minimum on your story. And then when you're done, you go down to the bookstore and you pull these magazines off the shelf and you look for agents at these, because uh, at the backs of magazines, they'll say, you know, who are the publishers and usually who are the agents. It's like, you find the addresses of the agents that you want to reach. Then you go down to UPS, you get yourself a manila envelope and you put your story in the manila envelope and then you put it in the mail and you ship it to them and then you wait and you just wait and you just keep waiting. And then in six to 12 months, they're going to mail you back a rejection letter and you're going to put it on top of your desk. And that's where you're going to stack all your rejection letters. And then you're going to do that for 30 years. And that's how you become a successful writer. And he was serious. He was like, in order to be a writer, you need to get comfortable with rejection. And half the class was just like, it was like a doomsday parade. You know, it was just, here's everything that's wrong with publishing. And here's why it's so hard to make a living as a writer. And, and I was sitting there and I got my iPhone in my pocket and I'm like, I have more technology in this phone than the space shuttle that we originally landed on the moon with. Like, how how is it that the most effective way to make a, make money as a writer is for me to go print off my story and then just go wait for a rejection letter? And I was furious. And so I left school basically being like, okay, thanks for teaching me things about writing. Thanks for teaching me how to read my work out loud. That was a really big thing that I learned and I loved that. But there was no preparation on how to actually monetize your craft. And so when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to have to go figure this out on my own. And I was talking to a friend at the time. And the, the question that I posed to him, he was a YouTuber as well. He was a gaming YouTuber. And I was like, if models and foodies and other uh, archetypes have Instagram and gamers and you know educators and filmmakers have YouTube, where do writers write? Like, what is the writing equivalent? And he said, oh, you should check out this platform called Quora. And Quora was a question answer site. I'd never heard of it. It was 2013. And immediately fascinated. Like, I spent hours reading on Quora. And what I noticed is every question was, the way I saw it, every question was basically a writing prompt. So it wasn't really a question answer site. It was a social question answer site. And every question was this, this jump off point. And all the highest performing Quora answers were stories. Hmm. So someone would be like, what is it like to be an entrepreneur? And the answer wouldn't be, here's a formal definition of entrepreneurship, right? The first sentence would be like, when I was 22, I was worth $8 million. And six months later, I was worth nothing sleeping on my parents' couch again. And you're like, obviously, I'm going to read the story, right? And so I had this aha where I, I noticed that I didn't have to wait for permission anymore. What my teacher was trying to tell me and us and all these students is there's a way that the game is played 
and you have to wait for permission or you have to you have to have someone else give you permission and they have to validate you and you have to wait and you have to wait and you have to wait and your success is based on someone else deciding when you're successful and the internet made me realize well no i don't have to wait for anyone i can just start writing and if the quality of my writing reaches people then we're good to go in that position a lot of in that position, a lot of people might be thinking, well, how am I going to make money from this? Like, it's all well and good answering free questions on the internet. I was writing on forums back in the day, but like, there's no, there's no obvious path to monetization there. Whereas in the at least old school traditional industries like publishing, it's like, hey, you, you know, J.K. Rowling got 57 rejections or whatever it was. And then the 58th one became, made her a billionaire. So that kind of, that kind of model. So I guess... I guess, how were you thinking about the monetization? Were you thinking about the monetization, that that fear of, okay, cool, I'm writing on the internet, but like, what what then? Totally. Um, the whole time, I mean, I could say, you know, I've been at it for 10 years now, and the monetization question is really hard to answer. That's part of why I'm so passionate about talking about it, because 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of resources explaining how to make money. The first... So I, in college, I started writing my first book, the, the book about being a gamer. And my goal was, I want to finish this book. And I kind of had the, the pipe dream that I think every writer has, where you think, my first book is going to be my magnum opus. It's immediately going to be this incredible bestseller. The world is going to notice my talent. And, and you just kind of think, magically, you're going to make a ton of money from it. And... I spent hours researching about, should I do self-publishing? Should I try and get a publishing deal? All of this stuff. Because I wanted to be educated on the business side. I didn't want to just, you know, accept whatever happened. And that first book did not make me a lot of money. I had a very real moment with myself where I spent four years writing this book and you hit publish and then you're like, cool, I made a thousand bucks, you know? And then you start to realize that the way that you're taught to think about monetizing your writing is only that model. You know, it's I hope the world recognizes my genius. You know, I don't even know what a publishing contract is, but I hope I sell enough copies so that I just magically, you know, have enough to live on. And then you start doing the napkin math and you're like, this is not going to work out the way that I think it's going to work out. So yeah, I spent a lot of time reading forums and studying other digital marketers and trying to understand like, what is a funnel? You know, what are ads? What's a landing page? What's an what's a free email course? You know, and just year after year, I just kind of kept piecing all these things together, learning how to monetize. So at the time you were writing on Quora, but it sounds like you weren't thinking, or were you thinking that okay, if I can do well in Quora, sudden then then, how, yeah, how how were you thinking about the monetization? I mean, in the in the very very beginning, it was a I I have no idea. I'm just going to try stuff. Mm, okay, uh, my. My assumption was if I get enough people reading my work on Quora, something will happen. So what I did is, you know, because that's the only place you can start from, yeah. right? And so what I did is I challenged myself to go, okay, I'm going to commit to this new thing. I was extremely disciplined in my 20s. I still am, but I was way disciplined in my 20s. And I was uh, really into bodybuilding. You know, I was lifting every day. I was eating six meals a day every day. I know I don't look it anymore. And uh, it was... To me, it was really important that if I started something that I baked it into my daily schedule and I did it every single day. 
because I knew that that was the only way that you would really see, is it working or is it just, I'm not putting in the effort, right? I wanted to run a clean experiment. So I was like, I'm going to write every single day on Quora, one answer a day for a year straight. Worst case scenario, I do the thing I love, which is write. Best case scenario, something happens. And I had this moment where, you know, it's how it always goes, where you start a new habit and then you get like a month in and you start getting in your head about it. And you're like, I don't know if I really want to do this. And uh, and one day I was like, I really don't want to write today. I, I'm just tired from my job. I don't want to hit publish. Forced myself to stay an extra 15, 20 minutes uh, at my job because I didn't have internet in my apartment. I didn't allow myself to have internet for four years until I finished writing my book because I knew I would waste it on YouTube. So I removed that option and I did all my writing at, if I need to use the internet, I would just use it as a coffee shop or at work or something. I wrote this Quora answer. I hit publish, got on the train. And by the time I got home, it was on the front page of Reddit. It was over a million views very quickly. And it was basically my story of going from really sick as a teenager, not knowing I had celiac disease to this bodybuilder. And I had this before and after photo uh, at the top. And it was a really short answer. And immediately I had I got all these emails from people, a lot of guys that looked like me on the left-hand side, which was, you know, skinny, scrawny, insecure. And I got the same two questions over and over again. What's your workout routine and what are you eating? And so I saw that and I had this connection moment where I was like, oh, a huge part of monetizing your writing is you need to write things that people want answers to, right? Like you are trading information for money, at least through the nonfiction lens. And so I spent all weekend writing these two eBooks. And on Monday, I put them up for sale. I connected the website and where I was where I was selling them to that viral answer that was still going crazy on Quora. And I remember sitting in my Monday morning meeting and my phone's just going nuts with Stripe notifications. And that's how I made my first like five grand, something like that. And I had this aha moment where I was like, oh, you can make money as a writer. It's just you need to differentiate between are you saying, I want to write this, and then you go out into the world and go, who's willing to buy it? Or are you starting in the opposite direction and go, what do you need? What, what answer are you looking for? What question do you have? And can I provide it? And that was the, as soon as I realized that, everything changed. And I went from the fallacy of, I'm going to sit down and write what I want to write about. Now I have to go hustle it, right? With yep. starting in the inverse. Who's, yeah. who's the reader? What do they want? I was doing a session for our YouTuber Academy yesterday where, where, you know, we were doing like a little Q and A and people were, people always struggle with this question of what's my niche. Mm -hmm. uh, and one way of approaching it is what do I want to make videos about? But the more successful way of approaching it is what do other people want and how can I serve them? Yes. <laughs> and just kind of thinking like an entrepreneur rather than thinking like a hobbyist who's like, Hey, I, I have all these, I have these hundred different interests. I want to make videos about productivity and entrepreneurship and personal development. Like, okay, as do 5 million other people. Like, right. <laughs> come on, where's, where's their market? Where's, where is there something that we can serve someone? Yeah. I mean, the, the hardest thing I think to wrap your head around is your niche is not about you. Your niche is about your reader or your viewer or your listener. So where I notice a lot of writers go wrong is they spend their whole lives just going, well, I want to write what I want to write about. And you should. That's great. But also, you are in service of the reader. 
And I think a really important thing to differentiate between is if you want to write whatever you want to write about, go for it. Like that's the beauty of the internet. That's the beauty of self-publishing. That's the, You have that freedom. But don't two seconds later then complain when the external result isn't what you want, right? So someone goes, I want to write what I want to write about. And then they go, and why aren't I going viral? Or where's all the money? Or why don't I have a gazillion followers, right? And that's because you're not being clear about whether you're doing this for yourself or you're doing it for an external outcome. And I think you need to be honest and go, I want to write to make money. Great. Make decisions that unlock that outcome. You know, whereas there's a lot of things that I want to write in my lifetime that I want to write. And I'm not confused about the fact that those things are probably, maybe, it might be a home run, but probably not going to make as much money as if I start with the end in mind and go, well, what does that person need and how can I use writing to serve that need? You know what I mean? There's this famous artist. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Like, um, I think uh, Aziz Ansari was at a party and he asked this really big musician who releases stuff like every like 10 years or something like that. And oh, I'm blanking on the name, but but uh, essentially he asked him like, hey man, how like it seems like you just kind of do whatever you want. You just release music when you want. It seems like you're not caught up in the trappings of the industry. Like, how do you do it? And the guy was like, it's easy. I just make a lot less money. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the, the, the way we teach this on our YouTuber Academy is I always say to people that there is a spectrum between I'm doing this as a hobby and I'm doing this as a business. Yes. Where are you on that spectrum from like zero to 10? And everyone says 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, otherwise they wouldn't be in the course. Whereas when we do our free workshops, everyone's like two, three, four is like mm -hmm. the average. But then the same people that are like, I want to do this 10 out of 10 as a business are still also kind of still struggling with this thing around like, oh, but I have all these 10 different passions and I want to make videos about all of them. Whereas you wouldn't make a, a grocery store, well, a, a, sh a shop trying to oh, tr a shop trying to sell absolutely everything because you'd be competing with Amazon. You'd be finding a niche where you know there's there is a market for the thing, and just focusing on that, even if you have these other ten interests. Yeah, I mean, the example I love, we use this in uh, in our course Ship Thirty, which is we ask the question, "What's Ryan Holiday's niche?" And immediately, the whole chat all blows up with the same one word. Right? Everyone says stoicism. And then I go, okay, great. How do you know that? Right? Like, why did you type that? And we don't realize that we associate niches with people because they educate us to do that. Right? It doesn't just happen. Like, the reason we associate stoicism with Ryan Holiday is because he writes book after book after book and he makes YouTube video after YouTube video that says stoicism. Right? We would not do that if every single thing he wrote or every video he created was a different topic. So I think that's point A. Point B is realizing that you can do both. I, I, it's a fallacy to think you're a one-dimensional person. You're not. We all have many interests. You can do more than one thing. Most people don't know that I have like, I don't even know, three poetry books published. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, right? <laughs> Most people don't know that. And that's fine because I'm not confused about which thing I do because I want to do it and which thing I do that is my moneymaker. That's the whole question is you want to make the niche. If, if your goal is how do I make money, right? You want to make the niche your moneymaker. But that doesn't mean you can't do other things. You can. Just don't 
expect those things to have the same external outcome as your moneymaker, right? And I think remembering that gives you so much freedom and it allows you to do all the things that you want to do and you aren't confused about what to optimize to make sure that you can still put food on the table, right? All right, we're just gonna take a quick break from the podcast to introduce our sponsor, which is very excitingly, Huel. I have been a paying customer of Huel since 2017. So it's been about six years now that I've been using Huel fairly regularly. I started eating Huel in my fifth year of medical school. And I've been using Huel regularly ever since because, you know, I like to be productive. I, you know, my calendar is full with a lot of things. And often I don't have the time or don't make the time to have a particularly healthy breakfast or a particularly healthy lunch. My favorite flavor is salted caramel because for 400 calories, you get 40 grams of protein, which is absolutely insane. And you also get a decent healthy mix of carbohydrates and fiber and fat, along with 26 different vitamins and minerals, which are all very good for the body. There's nine different flavors of this to choose from. My favorite is a, the banana version and also the salted caramel version. So what I do is I take my two scoops, I put them into my Nutribullet blender type thing, although you can just use a normal shaker if you want. I mix it up normally with water, but a little bit of milk to add a bit more of a milkshake-like consistency to it. And then I just sip that while I'm on my desk doing my work in the morning. And it ensures that I get a very healthy breakfast in that's nutritionally complete rather than some high sugar cereal, which is what I would have defaulted to instead. Also, Huel is ridiculously reasonably priced. Like a meal for 400 calories comes out to £1.68 per meal, which is super, super cheap compared to what the alternative would be if you were ordering takeout, for example. Anyway, if you like the idea of getting these cheap and healthy and nutritionally complete meals in your diet, then head over to Huel.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL, Huel.com forward slash deep dive, they will send you a free t-shirt, which are quite nice, and also a free kind of shaker bottle type thing with your first order. So thank you so much, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been? X weeks or X months further down the line. Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your trading 212 account. You can use Apple Pay, like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put 20,000 pounds in every year, up to 20,000 pounds, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store and if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, at the checkout, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. I want to come back to this stoicism um, stuff in a, in a moment where and we're talk, talking about the field of like category design and stuff. But before we go there, um, you said that you decided every day I'm going to write something on Quora and I'm going to do this for the next year. This was 
I guess equivalent uh, equivalent to my my thing for YouTube, which was I'm going to make a video every week for the next two years. Totally. And fingers crossed, something will happen. But even if not, like I'll learn stuff. I'm sure it'll be interesting in some kind of ways. Maybe I'll get get a few sales for my medical admissions course or something like that. Having now taught like you know a couple of thousand people for YouTuber Academy, and I'm sure you you've you know you've done the same thing for for Ship Thirty, the writing course. That's a pretty unusual kind of mindset to have. Like most people I know don't have that attitude of, all right, I've decided to do a thing. I'm just going to do it every day for a year. Like what what was it about you that made you more inclined to go down that route? And anything that you would, any advice you would give for people who are struggling with this idea of just committing to a thing and doing it consistently? Well, first of all, it's curiosity. Like I'm just a very curious person. And I think anyone who makes that decision is inherently curious. But really just stop and think about it, right? No one paid you to go to middle school, but we all have a lot of memories and a lot of lessons learned from being in middle school. No one paid us to go to high school, but same thing. No one paid us to have hobbies growing up, but yet we all look back and are like, oh, I learned so much playing a musical instrument, or oh, I learned so much playing a sport, right? We inherently do it. It's just for whatever reason, there's this fear of choosing to do it yourself. Whereas when you're younger, someone else tells you you have to do it. And there's something comforting about saying, oh, well, someone else told me that I had to do this. And so thus it must be the right thing, right? And once you get comfortable making those decisions yourself, you realize that there really isn't any wasted time. No one paid me to get into bodybuilding for six years, but the lessons I learned from that have shifted my life massively. You know, no one paid me to learn classical piano growing up, but I learned a lot doing that. And so all it is is just realizing that the outcome is positive. And even if you did it every day for a year, like extend the time horizon. Your life is long. A year is not that much time, right? And I think the fear that everyone has is I'm going to waste time. But then meanwhile, they're just, they go right back and they're scrolling on Twitter or Instagram. It's like, you're already wasting time, right? So there's something about just committing to the process and enjoying the journey and trusting that whatever skill you gain, that skill is probably going to be universal. It goes back to what we were talking about. You said there's a theme of gamers, musicians, right? Getting into, right? Well, what is that? That's just acquiring other skills. It's not really the skill of being a gamer. It's not really the skill of being a musician. It's all the underlying stuff, work ethic, commitment, creativity, right? Yeah, I, I see I see this a lot with um, with medical students in particular, where like medics are, and I guess like any kind of traditional career, which attracts a kind of risk averse kind of person who has done well in school, the attitude is always, um, how like essentially how many CV points am I going to get for doing this thing? Mm -hmm. And increasingly, and and it's it's easy enough in medicine because it's like okay, cool. When I if I publish these two papers, then four years down the line, when I apply for residency, I'll have an extra two points on my thing, and that will give me an extra five percent boost over the other people that maybe only have one publication. It's a very kind of points based, like I'm doing this thing because it will look good on my CV further down the line type of attitude. Whereas if I think of, I guess, kind of the entrepreneurs and stuff that I know, they almost never had the attitude of like, this will look good on my CV. It was almost always an attitude of, 
let me try this out and see what happens. And I'm sure something something interesting will happen further down the line. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't tell you what it's going to be, but we'll we'll kind of see what happens. Yeah, it's I think it's a very rare human trait to focus to want to focus on the skill more than wanting to focus on the outcome. I really don't care about a lot of outcomes. I like them. It it'll be fun when I get there, but I am way more obsessed and interested in mastering a skill mm-hmm. or knowing that if I'm in the same room with other people that are mastering skills, I want to know that I am able to play at that level or that I'm I'm able to surpass that level. For me it's all about skill. It's not about some title. Cuz titles are worth, you know, they matter for a moment, you know, and then two days later, everyone's like, oh, that title doesn't matter anymore. Right. So it's not the title that you care about. The second thing is when you're first starting out, this is why one of the big goals that we set for people in Ship 30, and especially after Ship 30, we have kind of a, a follow on um, area called the Captain's Table. And we go, the goal is to make your first dollar on the internet, it's not to make a million dollars. It's just you need to make $1 because if you start there, the moment you feel that there's a different direction that's possible, that's when you become excited about it, right? But all if you're risk averse, chances are it's just because you haven't felt that there's another option. But the moment that you feel, oh, there is another way that I can go, then it just becomes a, well, are you curious enough to keep going or not? And the decision, keep going or not, is a lot easier than start something totally new or don't. Mm. Yeah, I've been I've been doing a bunch of bunch of writing around this um, for the book that I'm working on. Kind of this uh, the law of inertia, like Newton's first law of motion, that you know something something at rest continues to stay at rest, mm-hmm. but something in motion continues to be in motion unless acted on by an external imbalanced force. And I often think of that when it comes to you know, struggling with procrastination or struggling with anything that is just like, it's way harder to get started than it is to just keep going. And so when it comes to like procrastination hacks, if I'm struggling with it, I'll literally set a two minute timer on my phone. I'm just going to do it for two minutes. And then I trick my brain into just doing it for two minutes, but then that extends into hours. Whereas the thought of doing something for hours then starts to feel like a real like, oh, and just taking that next step. Um, yeah, I, re- I really like this thing of make make your first dollar. And like the th- th- thinking about it now, like a lot of the conversations I've had on this podcast with other with other entrepreneurs, it's like the moment that they made their first dollar on the internet is the moment that changed their life. Everything changed. And that was for me. That was like when I was thirteen and I was doing freelance web design. I was like, shit, I can make money on the internet. It's like my my PayPal account that I've lied about my age, which <laughs> l- later got like banned ten years later because I had to give him my driving license, and they said you lied about your age ten years ago when no you were thirteen. <laughs> that was like, god damn it. <laughs> um, I'm but, I'm surprised yeah. you if you experienced that so early then that you decided to go to med school. Like, what made you then leave that? Yeah, so um, I decided to go to med school. I, di- I didn't say this in my interview at the time, but I reasoned that everyone says university is the best time of your life and med mm. school is six years rather than three. So that's cool. And it was between medicine and computer science because I was into the whole coding-y type thing. But I just thought it would be more interesting to be a doctor who knows how to code than to be a dude who knows how to code. <laughs> um, and so my plan was always like, hey, let me get really good at medicine. And then I'm sure with a coding background, something interesting will happen in the intersection of like med- medicine and technology. Um, and it was only as I got kind of further through it where I realized that 
I cared a lot less about medicine and a lot more about teaching medical students. So there's something about teaching that really made my heart sing that like practicing medicine never did. And that's what kind of took me down this avenue rather than that. Hmm. That's really interesting. I feel like you kind of made that decision then of if I have this, not status symbol, but it's almost like an, an intuition on your niche, mm. right? There's a difference between being a coder and being a doctor and being a coder doctor, mm. right? And it's often at unlikely intersections that opportunity hides. That's why I love looking back on my years as a gamer because pair almost anything with gaming and you have an unconventional niche, you know? And most things actually are like that is if you take two things that shouldn't be in the same room and you put them together, all of a sudden you've created a new thing. The problem is we all say we want to stand out. We all say we want to be different, but deep down, we all just want to fit in. We all just yeah. want to be the same, right? And so what's hard about creating at unlikely intersections is it requires you to be the first one, right? And I'm sure even as you were going through your journey or especially when you were thinking about leaving medicine, you know, there probably weren't a lot of models to look to, right? Which is what makes the decision so uncomfortable is you're like, I've never seen the thing that I'm about to do before, but that's also where all the opportunity is. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good way of putting it. Because I think, yeah, yeah. At the time, my my intuition was very much that like, because like every everyone I knew was a doctor, and everyone I knew who was a doctor complained about being a doctor, and I was like, okay, you know, this this is this is an interesting data point. <laughs> um, and I didn't even know that other careers existed outside of medicine, really, because you know, all, my mom was a doctor, all of our friends were doctors, just like so so standard, like mm. <laughs> amongst the kind of people I hung out with to be a, to be a medic. And I was like, yeah, I don't I don't want to quit just be a doctor. <laughs> I want I want to stand out. And I was like, cool, let's let's. Like, given that medicine is like the only thing I can really imagine, let's uh, combine other things with that. Um, and I think if I if I think of like if I think to YouTube channels that have have like really succeeded as well, it's because they've combined an, an a niche interest in one thing with an interest in another thing. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a channel called Tirzu, which is combining gaming with like uh, ecology and evolutionary biology to sort of gaming esque videos around like why are snakes overpowered. And why are lions like, why should lions be nerfed? And That's just using so cool. that kind of terminology, it's got like 3 million subscribers, like this stupidly profitable business. There's another one, um, Wendover Productions, where the guy's just obsessed with airplanes and like aviation. And he does explainer videos about how airplanes and aviation and like the logistics of Formula One and how, what flight they're taking as they move the, and people oh, wow. just love that shit. It's just like, this guy's like super obsessed with aviation, but has combined it with an ability to write and an ability to animate. And suddenly no one in the world is able to do that. Yes. And he's carved out this niche for himself that's gotten like 4 million subscribers on YouTube and makes a business. And it's so hard, I think, like to, if I, yeah, if I just think of the YouTube example, and I, I, I guess maybe similar for writing, to just try and dominate a single word category. Like it's, it's really hard to be a productivity YouTuber. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to be a productivity combined with gaming combined with health YouTuber, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's a, another way of framing it is which game do you want to play? Do you want to play the competition work ethic game or do you want to play the creativity, have fun expression game? And if you are trying to 
compete in an existing category or usually a single word category, all you're doing is going, I'm better than all the other people here. You know, if you want to be a doctor, the whole game you're playing is I'm a better doctor than all the other people who say they're doctors, right? And that game is predicated on work ethic, long hours, I'm better than you, incremental improvement. Or you can go, I'm a coder doctor or I'm an educator doctor, right? And you combine it with a different category, you create a new subcategory, and now you're not playing a competition game because everyone goes, well, all the doctors are over there and you're a coder doctor. Mm -hmm. So I can't put you guys in the same room, right? And when you do that, that allows you to then play a creativity game. And now you can go create all the opportunities that you want. And so it's so simple that it's complicated, you know, and it, we can make it sound simple, but I understand why people have the hesitations they do and the fears, but a lot of those fears to me are more underlying. It's a, I want to be different, but deep down, I really just want to be the same. You know, I want to stand out, but deep down, I really just want to fit in. And you have to overcome that feeling in order to play the creation game, you know, and that's really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Like, I think, yeah, I was speaking to someone earlier, just again on the on the YouTube example, because I'm just in the middle of this course now, who's like um, a lawyer, like super su successful lawyer, and has started a YouTube channel, which has started to get some traction. And she's like really worried, like, what if people at work are going to see this? And it's like, she kind of knows that like, to unlock this dream life where she can do what she wants, she needs to stand out. But at the same time, it's that tension between like, oh, but like, I don't, I don't want my colleagues to think of me as a loser who started a YouTube channel, <laughs> you know, when I had this illustrious law career, even though that's actually what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you, how do you, like, I guess kind of the, the writers that you coach have this kind of issue as well. How do you, how do you approach dealing with it? Yeah, it's the same thing we talk about in Ship 30. And to me, the easiest solution is you just start by being surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. Right. There's benefit to being, I had a, a mentor in Chicago who used to call it hanging around the hoop. You know, you're just going to get better if you hang around the hoop with other people who are getting better versus if you just try and go do it by yourself. And again, we all want to fit in. So if the underlying feeling is I want to fit in and then you try and go do it on your own, that is a very viscerally uncomfortable feeling. Right. But if, deep down, we all want to fit in. And then you are part of a community where everyone is doing that thing. All of a sudden, you are going to try to fit into that community, which is going to make it a lot easier to do the thing that you want to do. So there's something really helpful about just being surrounded by other people. Just like I'm sure you've realized how many inflection points as being a YouTuber came from you just being friends with other YouTubers, yeah. right? There's this compounding effect that happens. And so for me, whenever I'm starting to get into something, the first thing I do is I look for where's the hoop? Like, where are the people? Because if I just go spend time around the hoop, I'm going to get better 10x faster than if I just try and go do it on my own. Yeah, I like that. So we, yeah, we, 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 we talked about kind of focusing, focusing on, on the skill, focusing on mastering the skill rather than focusing on the outcome. Another thing that you said when when you were talking about um, the I guess consistency discipline stuff was also focusing on enjoying the journey. Um, this is like my whole spiel as well. It's just like with with anything. Yes, okay, set a goal, but like the goal is kind of meaningless. What matters is just enjoying the journey along the way. Um, do you have any kind of practical tips on how one can 
uh, nudge themselves more towards enjoying the journey along the way? Mm. It's a, that's a great question. Um, reminding yourself of it daily, you know, because I think the the crazy part is no matter what you achieve, the day after you achieve it, you're going to look at it and go, well, that was nothing. So what's next? You know, I still go through that. They're like, I wake up every day being like, oh, I still haven't made it as a writer. I've done everything I wanted to do. And I still feel like, oh, I haven't made it as a writer, you know? And so recognizing that that feeling never goes away and taking little moments consistently. Like I try to every day remind myself, dude, 10 years ago, you were in a really not nice studio apartment with like a heater from the 1960s, sleep on an air mattress with no furniture. You know, I mean, remembering all the things you had to do constantly is a really helpful way to just stay connected to, wow, I'm having, I'm having the time of my life. This is amazing. Yeah. The only thing I have, I'll, I'll, I'll show you after this, just on my computer monitor is a little post-it note saying, Rem remember to enjoy the journey, smiley face. And it's weird, but like just, just a little reminder like that when I see it in my profile vision, I'm just like, oh yeah. It's just like a little a little reminder that encourages me to actually try and enjoy the present moment and not just be so fixated on on the goal at the other end. Yeah, and it, and just always remembering that again, it doesn't matter what you achieve; it's never going to be enough. You think it will, it it won't, mm -hmm. and the goalpost keeps moving over and over and over again. So get comfortable with it. Nice. Okay, so we're back to this weekend. You've you've written your eBooks overnight around <laughs> bodybuilding routine and like nutrition routine, and like the next day you just made five k over the weekend how did how did that feel at the time and like what happened next it was game over after that 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 was the beginning of the end i started tracking all my income before that i hadn't done that you know you just show up to work and you're like i get my paycheck i started tracking my income outside of work so i was like what's my side hustle making me and it took me a while you know i think from the time i started tracking my income it probably took me about a year maybe a year and a half to build that trust with myself you know, because that's really where the fear is. You go, well, that's great. I just made a thousand bucks or a couple thousand bucks, but can I do that consistently? That's the real question before you can quit your job and go do something else. So I kind of pieced together a couple side hustles and I wanted to gather data to go, okay, for six months, can I prove that I can consistently generate a certain amount of income outside of my job? And once I got around 50%, of my monthly paycheck, I was like, I bet if I had eight more hours in the day, because I was only doing this, you know, at night, a couple hours, if I had eight more hours in the day, could I fill in the other 50%? Hmm. That was that was the bet I was making. And I was like, yeah, I think I can. And so in 2016, same day I published my first book, actually. So book goes live and it was my last day of work, which is really cool. I didn't mean for that to happen, just happened. And, uh, and I left my job. And two weeks later, I freaked out because I, you know, you don't have a paycheck hit your bank account, and you're like, "Oh, I need to, I need to start making some money here, or I'm not going to pay my bills." And my burn rate was super low. I was living in a really, you know, rundown apartment in Chicago, and you know, it's not like I was living lavishly at all. Um, and that's how I fell into ghostwriting. It was my first, my very first like real paid writing opportunity after I quit my job was a ghostwriting. Okay, that brings us very nicely to our five different ways to make a million dollars as a writer. Um, what were your like 
What side hustle income were, was getting you to this 50% point before, while you were still working? The big one was uh, in end of 2015, I want to say, maybe early 2016. Uh, so I, a little backstory. In 2015, 2016, Quora had a really cool partnership with all of the major publications. So they partnered with like Inc., Forbes, Fortune, Time, CNBC, all of these. And what they were doing is they had a team that would crawl really great Quora answers, and then they would pitch the Quora answers to the major publications. And I figured this out, and I spent, I don't know, 20, 30 hours going through Quora and just researching what are all the things most likely to get republished? Like, what's the the signal for CNBC is going to take a core answer, you know? And I, I mean, I basically came up with a, well, here's what they're looking for. Here's the type of topic. Here's the structure. A lot of them just wanted listicles, yep. you know? And I started deliberately writing my Quora answers in that style. So mm. I was like, that's the goal, you know? And again, to what end? I didn't know. I was just curious. And I was like, I bet if I get a bunch of Quora answers republished, something will happen. You know, so I started writing in that style and I, I'm pretty sure I set the record in 2015, 2016 for like the most core answers republished by other major publications in right. a year. I had dozens and dozens and dozens and I got them in every major pub. And there was a point where Inc. Magazine was republishing one of my core answers every week for like months. And so I ended up getting a column with them and how their columns worked, they changed it, but back then how their columns worked is you'd get paid per page view. Okay. So they'd pay you like a penny per page view. And to me, this was the mechanism that never existed, right? For writers, there is no YouTube and AdSense. So I was like, okay, that's fair. You're going to pay me per page view. If I can bring you traffic, I'm going to get paid. And I had already figured out how to write viral core answers. So I was like, okay, game on, like, let's play. And they gave me this column and they were like, hey, can you do like two to four columns per month? And I literally came back and I was like, can I do one a day? Like, I will write 30 columns for you a month because I want to generate enough page views so that I can make enough money to quit my job. And they were like, you're nuts, but sure. And I did it. And literally every single day for a year and a half, I wrote an Inc. Magazine column. Like, insane level of output and i was still writing on quora and, and this i was while you still had the job while i still had the job mm. so i was this was like approaching peak it got even crazier in ghostwriting after but like this was approaching the peak of what i could handle in a day or a week in terms of writing and i ended up bringing in like millions and millions and millions of page views for them and it amounted to roughly i mean it's funny to look back on now but I forget how the math worked out in terms of page views, but I probably was making three to five grand a month writing for Inc. And, you know, I wasn't making that much as a entry-level copywriter. So that was like 50% of my paycheck. And so once I had that, I was like, okay, if I had eight more hours in the day, my thinking was, could I write two columns a day? You know what I mean? Like I was like, could I just double the input yeah. and double the output? Um, so that was how I was making half my salary. That's really cool. <laughs> That's there were easier ways to do it looking back, but yeah. it was uh, it was an interesting mechanism at the time. To what extent were it's a bit of a random question, but to what extent were these were these like evergreen content, or like was this literally a trade of time for money, or was it actually a trade of because 
I feel like the moment you decorrelate your income from your time input, that's another inflection point that changes the game for a lot of people. Yes, that didn't come until way later. Um, it there. So I thought that there would be a compounding effect. Mm. I thought as my library grows, there will be some evergreen effect and then my average monthly page views will go up. And it did. My average did go up a little bit, but it was not – there was no inflection point. And so in order for me to keep earning three, four, five grand a month, I needed to be churning out 20, 30, 40 columns a month. So it, there was a while. Like it was until I got into ghostwriting, which was still trading time for money. It's just it was a premium yeah. on my time, right? But that inflection point didn't come till later. Oh, okay. All right. So you're – you, so your day job, which I don't think we've, we've mentioned yet, you, you were doing copywriting for an ad agency. Yeah. What is copywriting? I only recently realized, like, I was so confused, like like copyright with a W versus copyright with the R-I-G-H-T. Yeah. just like, yeah. <laughs> copywriting with the W yeah. is, and there's different uh, definitions for it. My job at the time was, I was doing like all the work that nobody wanted to do. You know, I was writing social media copy for brands. I was proofreading proposals to try and land new clients. Like I, Anything with writing in this agency is what I was responsible for doing. It was a small agency. The real definition of copywriting is normally in the context of sales copy. So you're specifically writing things with the goal of selling a product or selling a service. Yep. So you're writing landing pages or you're writing emails or Whatever it is. And there's a very specific, I don't even know if you call it style, but there's like rules to copywriting and sales copywriting and things that you need to do. You know, biggest thing is benefits, not features. Mm. You know, even that most people don't know. Don't talk about what you do, talk about what you're going to unlock for the reader, for mm. the customer, or whoever. So my job, quote unquote, as a copywriter was very basic. It was just sales copy, proofread, or um, social media copy, proofreading, stuff like that. Oh, okay. And how much were you earning at the day job? Oh, man. Like maybe 45K a year salary. I mean, okay. it was not a lot. Yeah. And so when you started earning the sort of three to 5K a month from Inc. Magazine, that was, yeah, I guess like 50% of your yeah your thing. And I didn't spend any of it. Yeah. I didn't upgrade my life. I didn't go buy new clothes. I didn't, I just saved it because I wanted that as runway. You know, I wanted to, when I quit my job, know that worst case scenario, I was good for like three months, four months, you know? So each of these were like very deliberate decisions along the way, but none, none of it was rash. It's not like I was jumping out the window going, oh, I just magically hope this all works out. Like it was always the next logical step. And, and I tried to minimize the risk as much as possible. We're going to take a very quick break from the podcast to introduce our sponsor, Brilliant.org. I've been using Brilliant for a few years now, and it's a fantastic online platform for courses in maths and science and computer science. Now, one of my life philosophies is that we should all endeavor to be lifelong learners if we want, because it's good for the mind, it's good for the body, it's good for our general happiness and health. And Brilliant is a perfect resource from this because you can really level up your own thinking in terms of maths and science and computer science without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on extra degrees or extra courses. Now, the courses on Brilliant are actually great because they take what could be dry topics in maths and science and computer science, and they turn them into really interesting, interactive and enjoyable 
kind of experiences where you learn a little bit and then you apply it in practice and then you learn a bit more and then you put it into practice. And it's almost like the system that we used to use in our tutorials back when I was at university at Cambridge, where you would learn a little thing and then you'd be paired with a world-class expert in the thing and they'd be asking you questions and you'd be kind of figuring it out together rather than being spoon-fed information like we're normally taught in school. Each lesson on Brilliant is broken up into 15-minute bite-sized chunks. And so wherever you are in your day, you can find a little bit of time, you can go on the app and you can level up your brain rather than scrolling social media or whatever the other default activity might be. And it's pretty cool as well because they're constantly updating the library of courses. For example, they've recently released a course, Introduction to Algebra. And this is like a visual representation of algebraic thinking. Now, I thought I understood algebra because I did maths in school, but actually the way that Brilliant explains it with kind of the stories and the puzzles and the interactive exercises you go along has really given me a new understanding of algebra that I just didn't have before. And that maybe you would need to do like a maths degree to actually get that grasp of what algebra actually is and why it's so important. So if any of that sounds up your street and you'd like to level up your thinking and your knowledge in maths or science or computer science, then head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive. And the first 200 people to click that link, which will be in the show notes and in the video description as well, will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you so much, Brilliant, for sponsoring this episode. And let's get right back to the podcast. Let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I want to I wanna moonlight as a ghostwriter. What does it like? What does it physically look like? Is it like if you find a client and then you hop on a Zoom call with them and be like, hey, what, what do you want to write about? Like, how, how does it work? Yeah, I mean, so there's a ton of nuance, obviously, but the simplest way to explain it is recognize that anyone with a business or anyone with a fund or anyone with a profitable product wants to share who they are on the internet because if they build an audience, they are going to attract more opportunity right? Or they're going to sell more of their product or service. So first of all, recognizing that potential ghostwriting, quote unquote, clients are everywhere. They exist everywhere. Anyone with a big YouTube channel probably needs a ghostwriter. Anyone with a big podcast probably needs a ghostwriter. Anyone with a company probably needs a ghostwriter, you know? And it's becoming less and less stigmatized. Like the same way that you go, I want to make videos. I'm going to hire a video editor. Well, writing's the same way. You're like, I want to write tweets, LinkedIn posts, articles, newsletters, whatever. You're like, I need a writer. You know, so that stigma doesn't really exist anymore um, or less and less. The what it actually looks like is you just get on the phone with the person or get on Zoom or whatever and you just go, okay, let's forget the whole 30,000 foot strategy. Like this one thing, what do you want to say? Like just one, it's a tweet, it's a thread, it's an article. I always tried to remind people, like, we're not going to figure out your entire life mission here, right? <laughs> that will reveal itself. Yeah. You know, uh, Mentor had, had a great quote, which is, um, you can't steer a stationary ship, right? If you're just sitting at your desk and you're just looking out into the world, you can anticipate it all you want, but the moment that ship leaves the harbor, if it starts raining, your your plan is out the window, right? So I would say that to these people over and over again and be like, the, the end will reveal itself. For now, let's just focus on what is the one thing you want to write. And all you're doing is just hurting their thinking. You know, you're just kind of whittling it down, um, getting clear on what it is that they want to say in this one piece. And the process that I did is I would take the phone call, I would record it, and I would use this website called Rev, which allows you to transcribe things. I would get the transcript. And I liked to think of ghostwriting myself as I'm not writing, I'm I'm deleting. Mm -hmm. So you have a you have a transcript and they're giving you all the information, and your job isn't really to sit down and recreate it. Your job is to remove all the tangents and all the fluff and all the things that don't have to do with the one thing that they're trying to say. 
and then you're just using their words and reorganizing it. That's the way I liked thinking of ghostwriting. And it's a skill, but if you can get good at it, I mean, you can make a killing. Yeah, like <laughs> it's only it's only recently this the this so like I work with a ghostwriter for like LinkedIn posts and stuff because it's like I want to convert my videos where I've already said the stuff into tweet threads and LinkedIn posts, but I sure as hell don't want to do that myself. So like, hey, who wants to who wants to help out with this? And now that I've kind of seen what that process of working with a ghostwriter is like, I'm just kind of thinking like one of the one of the ultimate side hustles these days is to be is to be a video editor because now having tried Massive. hiring video editors is just an absolute nightmare and most people are well, suck at it and if someone just took my skillshare class over a weekend they could become like really good at video editing i'm just like why don't why don't more people do this so anytime people email me and be like hey i'm a student and i want to make money on the side i'm just like look video editing is like a good starting point teach yourself the skill find find youtubers who need editing because they all do especially like podcasts everything except like content stuff but increasingly i'm starting to say to people it's like hey you've got two options Video editing or writing? Like, actually, if you can, if you are good at writing, like if you're a student and you've written essays and you can appreciate what like blog post writing is compared to essay writing, there's like zillions of like the local orthodontist, the local lawyer, the local accountant, they all need ghostwriters, way more so than video editors, actually. And it's just, it seems like an incredible opportunity. It's, yeah, it is incredible. And to be honest, it's even, I even think it's even easier now than even five, six, seven years ago when I was getting into it, which is, just think about how many creators there are and how the whole game, if you are a profitable creator, if you have some sort of business or product or service connected to the to your creation attention engine, right? You need to scale yourself on the internet with words. 50% of it could either be video audio and the other 50% is actual words and language. And so the lowest barrier to entry is a writer going to someone like you and going, I'm going to take your entire archive of YouTube videos. You've already done the work and I'm going to extract all of the written content that you haven't created yet. Right. And so as a ghostwriter, it's almost like humbling yourself and realizing you aren't getting paid to sit down and like be brilliant and quote unquote ghostwrite or ghost think. Right. You already did the thinking. The ghostwriter just needs to go through your library and go, I'm going to scale you with words. And you can make six figures doing that from your you know, bedroom in your sweatpants. I mean, that is not a hard job to get. And the way I like to frame it to people is the easiest and fastest way to do it is to do it for free first. Go find a creator, go find an entrepreneur, go find someone that you think should be scaling themselves with words on the internet and go, I'll do your first week of content for free. I'll write 10 threads for you for free. I'll write five blog posts for you for free. If you can do it well, that person will throw money at you. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> I'm the thinking if someone emailed me and was like, I, I, I see you've got these 13 Skillshare classes, your how to study should be a, an ebook. I've written the first five chapters for you. I'd be like, oh my God, like, join my team full time. I will do whatever it takes to hire the hell out of you. And like, no one has ever done that. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's and, so easy. <laughs> and so funny story. I went back to, uh, I went back to my college maybe like five years ago at this point, right at, it was six to 12 months after I quit my job. And I went back to my school and I was meeting up with a professor and I saw another professor down the street and he happened or down the 
the hall and he happened to be teaching a class at the time. And he was one of my professors and it was a small class, 15 students. And he was like, hey, as long as you're here, why don't you come talk to the class, share some of your lessons learned? Because he had kind of seen some of my internet writing and was like, oh, wow, there's starting to be some traction here. And I go in front of the class and he's like, all right, Cole, why don't you tell the aspiring writers here uh, how they can start making money from their writing? And I literally said, don't start by trying to make money from your writing. Do it for free. And everyone in the class looked at me like I was crazy. And my teacher jumped in and he was like, well, no, no, no. I think what Cole's trying to say is, you know, uh, charge your worth, you know, charge like an hourly rate or something. And I was like, no, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying start for free, prove you can do it. And then the opportunities will just waterfall all over you. And the problem with the reason people don't do that is because they're so afraid that they're going to get taken advantage of, or they're so afraid that, um, like they're doing something wrong. When really, if you offer to do something for free, what you're doing is you're removing all the friction. If someone DMs you and goes, I want to write for you, but this is how much it costs, you now have to allocate time and mind share to think about whether or not that's a good idea, right? Which you don't have the time to do. Any successful person doesn't have the time to do that, at least on command, right? But you can easily remove all that friction by just going, hey, I already see what you're doing. I've already consumed 30 hours of your content. I've already extracted these five threads and these five blog posts for it. I want you to read it. Here you go. If you don't have time to read it, pass along to your team. And if you want more of it, let me know. <laughs> Mate, this would be like literally my dream come true if anyone wants to DM me with, with that exact message. <laughs> and this, this is what people don't understand is that the free work, yeah. the ROI like, on I'm free work. I'm cheering up at the thought of like how incredible it would be if someone actually did that. And, and, and the amount of emails I get from people being like, bro, what's the best business idea? I'm like, God damn it. Exactly. Like, <laughs> and what, what people don't realize is I still do this. Yeah. Like I still, when I meet the right person, I still go, you know what? Don't don't pay me for that. Even though I know that they've got the money and I know that I'm worth the money and they know I'm worth the money, I still, in the right circumstance, go, you know what? Don't pay me for it. I'll, I'll do it for free. Six months ago, I met a guy, really successful entrepreneur and investor, and he wanted help writing uh, his speech. He was giving a commencement speech. And I was like, I could either charge money for this now or I can do this for free and I can call in a favor later. And I chose free because I knew, oh, okay, you know what? I see all these other outcomes that I could get later. And I bet if I do this for you for free, you are going to constantly think about ways to pay me back, yeah. right? Because that's how that type of person thinks. Yeah. And I, the reason I still make that decision is because people don't realize that the ROI on free work is exponential, whereas the ROI on paid work is not exponential. It's just fixed. It's like, hey, I'll pay you five grand, right? But I've done so much free work for people over the years that that's why my network is the way that it is because people go, well, I remember when you helped me write my commencement speech. So what do you need? Trying to raise money? Here's 10 people. You know, you're trying to do this? Here's the right person to talk to. You're trying to, you have a question about that? You should go talk to that person. Mate, it's game-changing advice. Like the ROI on free work. I was just thinking, like I was I was, I was saying this to a friend, a friend the other day, like I've, I've worked with like of of the various coaches I've worked with, two two come to mind. One and like there were there were both people I knew like through through the network who were who were who were getting into coaching, and one offered to do it for me for free, and the other one charged me for it. And the one 
who offered to do it for free. I have sent so much shit his way, so much traffic, of plugged course. his course whenever he's doing a course, plugged all of his stuff, because I feel this profound sense of like, like ev even though I could have, I could have easily afforded it and I knew he was worth it. And he, like, ev like we, we knew what was going on there, but like the fact that he offered to do it for free may, may make me, makes me feel so indebted to him. Whereas the friend of mine who charged me for coaching, when he asked me to plug his stuff, I'm like, kind of, it's just, it's just I mean, even, even though he's a friend, it's a bit, it feels a bit more, Totally. Like, yeah, weird. And a bit more transactional. I'm like, well, I mean, we, I could charge 20K for a sponsored video, like, kind of, et cetera, et cetera. And here's, here's <laughs> the, exactly. Yeah. And here's the thing is it often translates into paid work, right? If mm. you start for free, it doesn't take very long for the person to go, this is amazing. Yep. Now I, I, I want to pay you, right? They yeah. will throw money at you. And that's the point is like, if you can prove that you can do it, the money is easy. But if you can't do it and they're not happy with the free work, then you shouldn't be charging for it in the first place, mm. right? So it's it's an uncomfortable forcing function for you to learn, am I creating something for, the, for this person that's worth being paid for? And if it's not, you have more work to go do more free work to yeah. get your skill up, right? Yeah. And if it is, they throw money at you. Yeah. That's, it's like, it's, it seems like it's the longer road, but it is the shortcut. Because it's the forcing function for your skill, and yeah. the skill is the hard part. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I'm just the sort of so, so many dots are connecting, like in my mind. Like um, one thing that I've kind of been saying to uh, kind of team members of mine who are now getting into like YouTube consulting and stuff on the side, is I'm always just like just hop on a free call and give as much value as you possibly can on that free call, and I guarantee at the end of it they're going to say, "How can I? How can I hire you for this thing?" Totally. And a lot of them are like, "Oh, but like, should I charge?" And I was like, "No, no, free call." <laughs> give as much value as you possibly can. Similarly, uh, my old housemate um, used to kind of help me out with like businessy type stuff. And she then met a few kind of massive YouTubers and helped them be like, oh, you know, let's draw out an org chart. Let's like see how you're going to run the business. And they were like, shit, like this, this person's incredible. I want to hire you for, for like whatever, whatever amount of money you want. And it's just, it's just amazing how much people who are profitable and successful will throw, will throw money at people who are good because it's so hard to find people who are good at a thing and can demonstrate that they're actually good at the thing. Yes. Um, That's why, so we talked about, you can make a million dollars as a ghostwriter. And I, with, uh, when I had my agency, I mean, we scaled that up to several million in revenue. And that was, um, we did it the hard way. Like we made so many mistakes and the pricing should have been so much better. And like there, if I could go back, that business could have been so much more profitable than it was. But it was my first company and I made, every mistake in the book. Mm. But the second one that now we're talking about is um, productizing yourself. So, so turning your knowledge in whatever domain and using writing as the ability to scale yourself and productize yourself. So we did this with Ship 30 for 30, which is our course, right? So it's all the things that I and uh, my business partner, Dickie, talk about in terms of writing, and then we scale it through an education course that's writing based. You know, you can also do that with eBooks and you can do that with other assets. But the goal is instead of providing whatever you're doing as a service, so being like, I'm going to be a ghostwriter for you, or I'm going to be a consultant for you or a editor for you, right? It's all one-to-one. -one. You're, you're using time as your measure. Now you're just packaging it di digitally and that allows you to scale it. The, the beauty of productizing your service is that you, like we were talking about earlier, you're removing the constraint of uh, being paid for time. 
that's the whole that's like the biggest challenge is as long as you're being paid for your time and not the outcome it's really hard to have some sort of exponential jump mm. in income mm. you need to divorce the two yeah but i guess like you know it's it's very useful to start up being paid for your time cuz i think yeah. another mistake people make is jumping to let me create a course and it's like uh no one's going to buy it like <laughs> and that's that's why one of the things that i often encourage is start by providing a service so it's like start for free yeah. prove you can do it when you can do it people will pay you trust that that will happen and they'll pay you well for it and then use the paid work to learn what questions do people have what problems are they facing what are your unique frameworks for solving those problems, right? Once you get paid to learn all of those things, then when you go to productize yourself, you are, you're not sitting in a room going, well, how do I magically come up with all these answers, right? You already got paid to do it. So now you're just transforming your service into a digital product. And the whole model for this, going back to free work, is give away 99% of what you know for free, right? What The mistake everyone makes is they go, I'm going to productize myself. And before I tell you anything, you have to pay for it. Well, it's the same mistake as providing a service, right? You don't walk up to someone and go, hey, before you know what I can do, here's how much it costs. They're like, get out of here. But if you start by going, here's everything. Here's, here's, here's how to think about it. Here's how to solve the problems. Here's the interesting frameworks to frame the, frame the solutions. Here's everything you need to know. The person then goes, well, if all the free stuff was so great, then what's in the paid stuff, right? And what most people don't realize is most courses, most books, most uh, like paid membership communities, all of that, you aren't really buying information. What you're buying is implementation. You're buying accountability. You're buying access to the person that you want to learn from. So you can use all the information in your course as your free content. It's just when someone pays, they're not buying just the information, right? It's that you packaged it. You're saving them time. You're giving them access to you. You're answering their questions. That's what someone's paying for. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that people seem to struggle with in this is like <clears throat> thinking, thinking like hmm, how do how do I want to phrase this? Like th almost like th th thinking like a consumer rather than thinking like a business. Totally, kind of thing. Where I where I see this where like just that thing we were talking about earlier about how someone like me will literally throw money at anyone who is good, who's demonstrated the ability to do the thing. That's like unfathomable for people that don't have a business. Because mm -hmm. it's like, well, of course I'm going to kind of try before. I, I, like, I, mean, I mean, like it's just a very kind of individual way of valuing money, which, which tends to be very, very price sensitive and not appreciating what the ROI is for someone, someone with a business. Totally. And similarly, when we sell our YouTube course, people tell us it's like, it's, it's too cheap because a business or a brand for whom that's like pocket change is almost gonna think it's like scammy because it's, it's so cheap, even though we charge several thousand dollars for it. Mm -hmm. And so just the way an individual values money versus the way a business values money or someone who is already making money just is just completely worlds apart. This is, this is on my later list, you know, uh, a book I wanna write mm. at some point yeah. is, the different ways that people think about money and how quote unquote successful people think about money and and I want to help educate other people on the different ways that people who make money think about money in the sense that when you go to start a business or you pitch your services as a freelancer you need to understand that the person you're talking to thinks about money totally differently than you do 
right? Like now that I have made some money, the way I look at money is totally different, you know? And I make decisions not on, oh, well, how much does it cost? I make decisions around, well, how much time is that going to save me, you know? Or a, a really great one is, you know, when I was broke, I would look at like a $5,000 a month service as, oh, that's so expensive, you know? But then as soon as you have a business, and a business that's doing a million, two million, three million, four million, right? You start looking at the 5K a month as a negligible expense. Mm. And you don't realize that when you're starting out, yeah. right? Because when, you, when you're living in the rundown apartment, you're like, 5K a month is a lot. Who would spend that, right? And same thing with now restaurants. It's like, I noticed that my default, if I'm in a new city and I'm looking for a restaurant, what's the first thing that I do? I pull up Google and I sort by most expensive, right? Because there's a there's like a, a bias of, well, if it's more expensive, it's probably better, right? So if you're pitching your services and you're pitching them at a discount, the person that you're trying to sell to is like, I don't want the Honda Accord, I want the Ferrari, right? So it's, it's all these very interesting ways of thinking about money that I, it takes a while to see it from the other side. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the one of the ways that I often think is like these days is just in terms of uh, sort of very back of the envelope ROI calculations. Like, I I, I booked a flight last night. Um, I'm going to Pakistan in the new year for a cousin's wedding, and the economy class flight was two hundred pounds, and the business class flight was three thousand pounds. But doing the business class flight would allow me to leave a kind of team annual planning thing an extra two hours later. And I was like, 100% valuable because me being there with a team of 13 people for, to give two hours more input on vision and direction of the business is worth way more than 2,800 pounds. Hell yes. That's a great example. And that's something I just would not would not be even able to fathom had I not had, were I not running a business because it's like, why the hell would anyone spend 3K on a flight where you could spend 200 quid for exactly the same thing? Totally. That's like, you know, the, val the value of money just com completely, completely changes. Yeah. Where are you staying? Do you have access to internet or not? Does that allow you to work? Yeah. Yes or no? You know, can you make use of your time by meeting someone else there? There's so many other things that have to do with the decision than just the price tag. Mm. The price tag is often like the easiest part. That's yeah. not what people get caught up on. It's how much every every single ghostwriting client that I had, it wasn't the price. They would ask me how much time is this going to consume of mine? Yeah. So if I pay you three grand a month, four grand, five grand a month. Do you need an hour of my time or do you need 20 hours of my time? That is the decision. It's not the amount of money. And again, that takes that's really hard to wrap your head around when you're especially when you're first starting out yeah. and you're trying to charge for things like you you can't understand that decision. Yeah, like uh so I'm 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 kind of seeing this from the other side now that ver like various people on our team are doing this side hustly stuff and they all like say to me that oh my god like kind of just speaking, speaking to people with businesses just makes me realize just how differently they think about money and how differently I think about money. And now what they do, you know, one of our one of our ghostwriters is like, he the, the the way he negotiated a pay rise was basically being like, this thing does not require any input from you beyond like ten minutes a week. You never need to check the things. No one ever complains that this was not written by you. Like this is saving you a lot of time. And I was like. Sure, let's three x your thingy, which was what he was asking for, because it was still totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> amazing segue. So we talked about ghostwriting, yep. and we talked about uh, productizing yourself. Hmm. 
So third being sales copywriting. So the beauty and how you can make a lot of money as a sales copywriter is you want to divorce, again, you want to divorce being paid for the effort versus the outcome. Yeah. So there's a lot of copywriters, sales copywriters that get paid like per asset, you know? So they go, hey, I want to charge, you know, five grand to rewrite your landing page, or I want to charge you, you know, 10 grand to redo your email course or whatever. And you can easily make six figures doing that. How you break into upper six figures, seven figure plus territory is you have to not be compensated for the effort, but for the outcome that you drive. How does that work? So for example, the way that a lot of uh, really successful sales copywriters structure their deals is they go, okay, let's take a product or let's take an existing funnel. Here's the average amount of revenue that you're doing right now. If I can write things that lift the revenue 25%, 50%, I get a piece of that. So now you're being compensated on the outcome you drive, not on the, I spent 20 hours rewriting the landing page, right? Because if I know how there's, I mean, what's the great, is it the Picasso story where he sees the woman in the park and she's like, yeah, draw something for me. And he draws something on the napkin. And then she goes, how much should I pay you for that? And he goes, 10 grand. She goes, what? It took you two minutes. you know. And he goes, yeah, but it took me a lifetime to learn how to draw like this, right? So if I'm being paid to drive an outcome, it shouldn't matter whether it takes me 20 hours or two hours. Mm. I want to be compensated on the outcome that I drove, yeah. not on the effort. And so that's how a lot of, especially really legendary sales copywriters, Gary Halpert, um, Eugene Schwartz, like all, all these guys, how they made their fortunes was they would take a piece of the upside that they unlocked for the business or the product. Yeah. And it's so worth it for the business. Like if someone, again, like, like at the moment when we do landing pages and stuff, we do it per like effort mm -hmm. kind of unit. But if someone were to be like, hey, look, I will measure your conversion rate <laughs> and or, or whatever, and I'm going to aim to double that and I want like 10% of the upside. I'd be like, hell yes. Like, exactly. That's a, of course, that's a trade I'm making any day of the week. Because it's the exact same thing as a salesperson, yeah. right? You go, hey, based on how much new revenue you bring in, we're going to give you a commission. Yeah. So you as a writer are basically being paid as a quote unquote, infinitely scalable salesperson. Hmm. And if you can write things that prompt people to purchase or take an action, you yeah. should be rewarded for the fact that you unlocked that outcome. How does how does one get good at becoming a sales copywriter? I mean, like anything, you do it a lot, yeah. but um, study the greats, you know? I mean, there's a lot of really amazing sales copywriters over the years. My personal favorite is Gary Halpert. I like, I like saying Gary is what Hemingway would have been if Hemingway had gotten into advertising. Okay. Him yeah. and Hemingway have very similar terse minimalist styles, right. but Hemingway went the novel route and yeah. Gary Halpert went the, I'm going to sell products route. Um, and also try and sell something yourself. Like the fastest way you're going to learn is when you start writing things that prompt people to buy. And when you notice, oh, when I wrote this, no one bought. And when I wrote this, some people bought, right? You, the, your subconscious is going to soak up all of those lessons and you're going to start to piece together your own framework on, well, how do I get people to buy? Nice. So, okay, sales copywriting. Um, so you said that kind of your first year as a ghostwriter, your first few months as a ghostwriter, you were up to like 250K a year. But then you said like that kind of changed and like what what, what happened at that point? So now I like to, I, I call it the valley of death for 
uh, freelancers who want to build agencies. Mm. So what happened was I got up to maybe like 20 or 30K a month uh, as a ghostwriter. And I, I mean, wow. I was working four hours a day, yeah. talking to really smart people, making way more than I was making as a full-time employee and having a blast. Like it was best case scenario. And I was talking to a close friend of mine and I told him what was going on. And he was like, we should turn this into a business. You know, think about what you're doing. We can break it apart. So we'll have editors who talk to the clients and we'll have writers who do the writing. He said, I will train the editors and I'll do the phone calls. He was in sales and, you know, that was a great skill for him. Yeah. And he's like, you'll do the writing and you'll train the writers. And in about 18 months, we scaled that from me and him on his apartment couch to more than 20 full-time employees, couple million in revenue and like 80 plus concurrent clients. Mm. And we had, uh, I mean, just CEOs of publicly traded companies, Grammy winning musicians, New York Times bestselling authors, like all over the board and in every industry. And the problem was ghostwriting is such a subjective skill. You know, you're not selling plastic widgets. You're 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 writing something that the person on the other side goes, I want to put my name on that. Yeah. That reflects me. And the misunderstanding that people have is ghostwriting is often not ghost thinking. Yeah. Right. So these people aren't saying think for me. They're yeah. saying, I have my ideas. I just need you to clean it up yeah. and scale it. Yeah. Right. And that was a very challenging business because we, first of all, everyone was full time. Everyone was on salary. There was no contractors. So we had a ton of overhead. Mm. Um, and even though we ha we had no problem attracting and getting clients, it was the the business was unstable in the sense that clients would churn, but the overhead was fixed. Yeah. So you constantly needed to be filling up the bucket faster than the water was coming out. And and it was no problem when it was a small agency and it was five people. But the more that we tried to scale, right, your sales machine needs to get more and more powerful in order to do that. And so the reason I call it the valley of death is there's this, there's this gap where a freelancer, ghostwriter, or a very small agency, so from I'll call it like a quarter million to maybe a million yeah. in revenue, right? Perfect. Yeah. Right? Perfect. Like just enough clients, just enough demand for you, uh, just enough take-home income to be worth your effort. But then between a million and like, I'd say the real number is like 8 million. Yeah. That is the value of death. And your margins go down, your profitability is down, right? You're, you're taking out less and less cash of the business. The sales machine needs to get more and more powerful. And basically the net of it is if you can't get to 10 million plus, your agency is going to just make you gray and unhappy. Mm. And I saw it everywhere. Every agency owner I talked to, it was like they were, you know, just their whole life was a mess and yeah. gray hair and disheveled and stressed. Yeah. They were all in the valley of death. And I ultimately came to the same realization. We got a two and a half, three years in and I was stressed out in my mind and there was a point where I ended up in the hospital with shingles because I was so stressed and I was on painkillers and on antibiotics in my bed interviewing like the next two full-time people and the next full two full-time people. And I was just, I'd had enough. And I had this talk with my co-founder and we were like, let's be done. Let's just fire everybody. Go back to just you and me. Yep. We had been paying ourselves half of what I was making before you know, we were in the valley of death yeah. and I was like, I'm done. And so 
uh, very weirdly, six months before the pandemic, we let everyone go. We scaled the business back to just us two. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit, you know, five, six months later. And if we hadn't made that decision, the business would have been dead mm. for sure. Have you, have you come across a guy called Daniel Priestley? He's written a book called Oversubscribed and Key Person of Influence and like stuff. The name rings a bell, but <laughs> yeah, not so, familiar. So, so we had him on the pod um, a few months ago and he's actually in London as well. And and, and, and he's become a friend a friend and mentor. He has a, a, a model that's almost identical to yours, just coming at it a different way. Hmm. The way he phrases it is that kind of zero to three people is like, okay, whatever. Three to 12 people, that's where you're you're either a struggling boutique or you're a lifestyle boutique. And the difference there is if you have 100K per revenue, uh, 100K revenue per employee, you're a lifestyle business. You're like living the dream, fun, freedom, flexibility. So from like 300K to 1.2 million, if you have three to 12 people. And then for him, 12 to 40 people is the desert where companies go to die, yes. where you're too big to be small and too small to be big. And beyond 40 people, it's like, okay, now you're in performance business territory where you've already got all the systems and processes and blah, 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 blah. But if you're optimizing for fun, freedom, flexibility, cap your team size at 12. And what we have found is that when we had like 18 to 20 full-time employees, it was a nightmare. Now that we have 12 full-timers and everyone else is a contractor, it's such a breath of fresh air. I feel like I have zero stress. I spend all my time just writing, writing or filming or doing podcasts, which is what I love, and 0% of my time in meetings. But there was something magical about, something like magically bad about having kind of 18 to 20 full-time employees where everything just felt like it was going to shit. Yes. <laughs> and that seems to mirror your experience as well. It's the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a, a whole separate nuanced conversation, but oftentimes, so I'll say, I'll speak for myself. Hmm. The mistake that I made was I equated success with headcount. So to me, it was like my ego, I was proud of myself when I said, oh, we have 15 full-time employees. We have 20 full-time, we have yeah. 23 full-time, you know, and you start to realize that a, that's a horrible measure of success because you're literally bragging about the fact that your overhead is going up and your profitability is going down. Yep. So that's, I don't know what I was thinking. Yep. But the more important thing is when you're focused on headcount or you think about hiring in terms of roles, most people start from the, the perspective of, okay, I need a project manager. I need a social media manager. I need a whatever, right? So they think of the role. The more effective way of thinking about it is, what is the task? What is the lever that you need? And is that directly correlated to growth in the business? So are you a revenue critical employee or no? And the mistake that I found we were making was we were adding all these employees that even though they, yes, they like had things to do, they weren't revenue critical you know and that's that's where things start to fall apart is you you start looking for roles mm. or you assume that each role is a full-time thing yeah. it's not most most of those levers and those tasks are not full-time they're part-time yep. and can easily be contracted out so and to your point right is if you can keep that below the 12 people ish mark it's a really nice forcing function to go i'm not going to think about hiring as the measure of success i'm going to think about the levers that have to do with profitability as yeah. the measures of, of success and actually less headcount is more successful yeah. than more yeah yeah i think i i kind of fell into the same trap like a year or 18 months ago where you know in, initially i was doing the youtube thing myself for two years and then 
I read the E-Myth Revisited and had a mentor who encouraged me to hire. And we got an editor and we got a writer and it was like, oh my God, incredible. Like so good having like two, three, four people on the team. And then we were like, hey, we're making all this money through courses. What if we got like someone to help produce the courses? Cool. Five, six, seven people on the team. And then our cohort-based course really took off and suddenly we had more money than I knew what to do with. It's like, well, all this millions are sitting in the business account doing absolutely jack all. So mm-hmm. let's hire some people. And that was the mistake. <laughs> the mistake was thinking that there is a linear correlation between uh, a new employee doing a thing that theoretically should contribute to revenue and the real world of that thing, the communication and managerial overheads associated with having an extra person on the team. Even if their thing is contributing to revenue, it's, it, it just, the whole system ended up slowing down. And I was in my mind trying to figure out like ROI calculations for every employee and all this kind of stuff. And it just turned, turned into an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Um, most people, <laughs> yeah. most people are not revenue critical, hmm. and that that was one of the harder lessons for me in that first business. So, if you were to do it again, would you only hire full timers who are revenue critical, and then contract the rest, or like how how would you be thinking about that? I would either do it as I would keep it very very small. Like we had an we had such an amazing business when it was just five people. Yeah. Like and looking back on that, I was like, oh, I wish I knew how good I had it hmm. at that moment um, because. Me and my co-founder were essentially out of the business. We had just an, we had just enough people to run it, yeah. and we could just oversee and focus on bringing in new clients. And we didn't need a ton of clients because it was a small team. You yeah. know, it was like it was perfect. Yeah. And so I would either do that again and keep them full time and just and almost operate at a deficit intentionally. Like I'd rather have a wait list for clients yeah. than constantly be like, we need ten new clients a month. You know. Yeah. So I would either do that or I would go the contractor route. Um, but same thing, I would probably keep it small. And the thing that I try and educate talented writers on is you will probably make more, so that valley of death, you will probably make more money just doing what you do individually and scaling your your pricing in a niche and being the best person in that niche just working for yourself. You will probably make more money. You don't need an agency. And whenever someone thinks about scaling themselves with an agency, I always try and stop them. And I'm like, you do not need this. Like yeah. you're actually probably going to make the same or less money because now you have other people to take care of. Yeah. So if you're a really talented writer, you might as well just work for yourself. Yeah, it, it seems like the agency game is becoming like, a, I feel like a, f- a few years ago, if, if you looked at the category of make money online on YouTube, drop shipping, affiliate marketing was all the rage. These days, it's all about social media marketing agencies. Yeah. And there's like a few kind of big YouTubers, one of whom we had on the pod a few months ago, who have courses teaching people how to set up agencies and stuff and um, young, broadly young and broke people who watch these sorts of videos on how to make money on the internet are thinking that an SMMA, social media marketing agency, is like the the key to riches and wealth. Um but I think that that thing of like the genuinely is like a valley of death between like one one and ten million where things things start to break. <laughs> and there's there's a nuance here, which is you can be a one person agency, right? A lot of times the the agency education mm. is really just about pr- productizing your service and organizing it. And, and, you know, you can have the service and then you can scale it with some digital products. Like, and you can do all of that as a one person shop. That's fine. The myth though is, 
oh, if I hire more people, my income just goes up to the right. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. And your headaches go up and it demands a totally different skill set. And you go from being a writer or practitioner into being a manager, right? Your whole life is different. And so if that's what you want, go ahead and do it. But if you're a writer or you're really great at a specialty skill set, you're better off just scaling and increasing your earnings and charging more and working mm. with higher and higher quality people than you are going, well, let me scale horizontally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of, the, one of the ways I think about this, which kind of really actually helped shape a lot of decisions in the business, is that if I won the lottery or if I took money out of the equation, how would I want to be spending my time? And I found that like when we had 20 people on the payroll, the ways I was spending my time were radically different to how I wanted to be spending my time. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that we have basically the same people, but like half of them are contractors and the other half are, are employees. Now I'm spending all my time doing the things I actually want to be doing. Um, and I, I find that this is a good, so similarly, I know, I know people who just really enjoy writing, who actually want to do writing. They don't want to manage an agency of writers. They want to do the writing because it's fun. Right. Yeah. I was that person. And it took me, yeah, it was a hard lesson to learn. Like, I don't want to manage 20 writers. You know, I'm really good at what I do. Mm. Uh, I just want to be paid a premium to do what I do. Mm. Nice. Okay, so, so far we talked about kind of five different ways to make seven figures as a writer. We talked about um, writing as a service, like ghostwriting, and how essentially by just starting for free, doing it for someone really well, they'll, they're going to throw money at you and also throw referrals at you because, you know, it's just a thing in the world of business that people who are successful know other people who have made made lots of money and who need the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's just like easy easy enough in inverted commas. We've talked about productizing your service and turning it into more of like well, agency slash digital products. We talked about sales copywriting. We're like paid paid newsletters. What's the deal with that? Paid newsletters are they're both an, an older category and now it's being reinvented uh, by Substack. So all a paid newsletter is, is you just being paid for your ability to scale a certain type of idea, framework, um, news, whatever the benefit is to the reader. And so when someone goes, I'm going to start a paid newsletter, they think, oh, just because it's a paid thing, I'm going to make money from it. No, that's not the case. That's like saying just because I wrote a book, people are going to buy it. People don't buy the asset, right? No one buys a book. No one buys a paid newsletter. What the person's buying is an answer to a question. They're buying a certain type of outcome. And the paid newsletter is just a way of delivering that or scaling that. So to me, there's really only two types of paid newsletters that work. You either have timely newsletters where the, the benefit is you're saving me time. So you as the newsletter creator go out there and you're going to dig through all the information. You're going to do the research. You're going to round up all the statistics and the facts, yeah. and you know, and you're, I'm paying you to go do all of that time and you're going to compress it down for me. And because you're saving me so much time, I'm going to pay you for mm, that. Like trends. Exactly. Newsletter, yeah. So that's, that's one side of the barbell. And then the other side of the barbell is the complete opposite. You go, I want access to quote unquote insider information. I want expert level insights. So this person is a domain expert, they're going really deep and you are it's almost like you're paying to get the I want coffee with you at scale. Right? So someone's yeah. like I'm an expert in this thing, you pay me 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever it is, 
and you're getting access to my frameworks, my insights, my, and I'm going to take you down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And that's the barbell. You're either in super timely or super timeless and shallow or deep. And any newsletter that sits in the middle, like the biggest mistake is people go, subscribe to my newsletter. Nobody cares about your newsletter, right? They care, is this a trade for time? I'm paying you to save me time, or is this a trade for expertise? I'm paying you to shorten my growth curve. Ah, yes. So like Ben Thompson, the strategies of the right. world are like the depth, in-depth analysis on a topic that this guy's been in for the last 20 years. Totally. And then the trends of the world are like, we've got a team of researchers who are going to research the best trends, and we're going to save you time as an investor, or as a business person to be able to see what the market wants. And that's the barbell. And, and, the barbell. and yes, there are outliers, yeah. but- 99% of the time, successful paid newsletters fall into one of those two categories. Mm -hmm. And again, you have to start from the thinking place of you are not writing what you want to write about and then charging for it. You have to start from the place of I am starting a business called a paid newsletter business. And what am I in the business of doing? Saving people time or giving people expertise? Those are the two businesses. And you need to be clear on which business you want to start. Yeah. And I guess a mistake that that people make with this is almost thinking of a paid newsletter as sort of a Patreon equivalent mm -hmm. of like, hey, you like my newsletter every week where I share my my what what I'm getting up to in my life, you know, as with some some percentage, feel free to support me, kind of vibe. Huge mistake. Yeah, because nobody. I mean, look, it's not just creators who make this mistake. Go go to any multi billion dollar company's website. On the sidebar, they go subscribe to our newsletter. You're like, why? Even free newsletters can't get people to read it, right? Because the, val the value to the reader isn't you have a newsletter. The value is which one is it? You're saving me time or you're saving me years and shortening my growth curve. And so you going, you know, subscribe to Ollie's newsletter, right? Like, yeah, some people might, but that is not the lever mm -hmm. that makes the paid newsletter go. Yeah, and I guess, you know, even in the creator zone, if we think of like Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday, the way he pitches it is that every Friday is just five things that I've curated because I, I come across interesting things and I will save you time because yeah, you, which and, one is and, it? and you can try you can try these things out. And that's it's not even a paid newsletter. It's just a, right. it's just a free one. Um, and you yeah. can go the free route and monetize with ads, which is what he did, which is, yeah. you know, the hustle, morning brew, all like ads work, but subscription revenue is king, mm -hmm. right? And if it doesn't take very much for you to go, okay, if I can get a thousand people on my paid newsletter, I'm living, yeah. you know, you're making six figures. That's, that's amazing. Like you, the math is it's, it's not that hard to make six figures as a writer on the internet. If, if you can unhook your thinking from I'm writing what I want to write about and people are going to pay me, right? You're starting yeah. a business. The business is you're in the business of serving readers with your writing. Mm -hmm. And so the only way, like I think you can get to six figures just fumbling around, but the only way that you're going to get to seven is by being really clear which side of the barbell are you on. Yeah, uh, the, uh, this is like an, I feel like I've only, I've only recently developed this appreciation of like almost like the, the difference between six, seven, six figures and seven figures. Because having like, I've now been in that zone for the last like many years. But I have zero 
like at all, like zero experience at the eight figure range. And so when I speak to like, you know, I interviewed Alex Formosi and he was just like, oh, well, you know, six figures, single channel, single target, single avatar, single product, easy. Seven figures, blah, 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 easy. Oh, I suppose you get to 5 million by blah, 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 blah. And, you know, 15 million is a lot harder because I'm just, and I'm just like, okay, this is now a level of knowledge that I just cannot even appreciate because I'm kind of stuck in the seven figure category myself. Mm-hmm. And similarly, a lot of viewers or, or, or listeners are stuck in the five-figure category where they've got a job and they they aspire to get to six figures. Whereas like, oh my God, if I could make six figures doing what I love, I writing for four hours a day. Hell yeah, sign me up. Yeah. And then you get to that point and it's like, and, and you almost kind of realize that, yeah, this thing of six figures isn't that hard, but seven figures is. It's mm-hmm. like my, my current model. But someone like Hormozzi might think, Seven figures, not that hard. Eight figures maybe is. <laughs> and it's just like different levels of experience get you to different kind of number of zeros on the end of your, on the end of your balance sheet. Totally. Yeah. It's di- there's different uh, models and mental models for each one. And also it just depends on which business you're in and are you, are you okay with the business that you choose? You know, like for example, I love writing books. You can make millions of dollars writing books, but it's a lot easier to make millions of dollars providing a service or, you know, (laughs) like being a ghostwriter as a service or productizing yourself or building a course or an education product. So it's possible to do all of these things. It's just, is it the thing that you actually want to spend time doing? And that to me is the more important question, you know, like, are you playing the game that you want to play? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was was speaking to another um, entrepreneur friend the other day and um, I, one, a a dilemma that I put to her was that like, yeah, I feel like you know, now that we're, you know, this YouTube channel is at least somewhat successful. There's all these like different ways of making money. And I just like, don't really know which, like which ones we should be going for. And the analogy that she used was like, she was like, oh, you know, the, the, way, the way I think of this is that there's all these different like money clouds in the air and you can make any of them rain. But the point is you just want to figure out which ones align with what you actually want to do and your own values. And then you just ignore all the other 99% of them and just dis- actively decide these are the ones I'm focusing on. Yeah. Yeah. Sick. Cool. So writing books, how does one make money through writing books? <laughs> so the big, the big question with this is self-publishing versus traditional publishing. Mm. So just for a little context. So most people don't know that a conventional publishing deal goes like this. They give you an advance. That advance is predicated on your existing audience, right? It's often not the quality of the book. It's your existing audience. And how the deal structure works is they'll probably give you a, we'll call it 8% on the really low end, 15% on the high end royalty. So the real way to think about it is the advance they're giving you, they're buying 85% of your book. So imagine your book is a business and an investor comes along and goes, I want to buy into your business. I'm going to take 85% and I'm going to give you this advance. The advance for most people, I mean, I'll say probably the average is somewhere between 10, 20K all the way to maybe 100, maybe 2, 250K. Anything above that, you have a giant audience or you're a celebrity. Yep. Like, period. And anything below that, the reason they're giving you that is because your audience is growing and they believe that you will be bigger tomorrow than you are today. Yeah. So it's worth asking the question if a publisher is willing to give you that, why are they willing to give you that? And if they're going to give you 100K, that means they think they can make a million. Mm. So keep that in mind when you're you know, thinking about your deal. The other side of it is 
self-publishing. Most people don't know how easy self-publishing is. You can do print on demand on Amazon. You upload your book. Anyone can do that. Every time a book gets sold, you get your share. And if it's a print book, all Amazon does is they extract their printing cost. So say the printing cost is $3. So they're selling the book for 10 They extract the three because that's what it costs them to print. They ship it to the person and then you get your split something like 65%, you know, or whatever it is. Um, And that's how self-publishing works. And so there's a bit of an irony in the sense that you are only going to get a publishing deal if you have an audience. But if you have an audience, you could and should just self-publish because you're going to make more money. And it's important to do the napkin math on how many copies do you need to sell if you're only getting 15% of every sale or if you're getting 65-70% of every sale on Amazon or 100% on your own site? And after you do the math, you realize you need to sell like close to 10 times more books with a traditional deal than if you just self-publish. So oftentimes, you will make a lot more money just self-publishing. And the only time, in my opinion, the only time you should take a traditional publishing deal is there's three criteria. There's it's either a personal development book, it's a personal finance book, and you are swinging for I want to write a New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller. And by the way, the only way that you're going to hit that list is probably if you're writing a personal development book or a personal finance book, because that's the vast majority, right? And even further, if you want a chance at hitting that that list, be prepared to spend a lot of your own money as well. So to me, that's the only time you should be playing that game. It's like, I've got everything in place. I want to swing for the fences. I want to do this thing, right? If not, if you just want to make money, self-publish. A lot of this stuff, like, I mean, I guess maybe not ghostwriting, sales copywriting, prioritizing your service, but certainly paid newsletter and writing books and certainly selling a course and stuff all seem to be predicated on building an audience. Uh, I know this is a huge ass question, but like, how does one build an audience with online writing? What's the playbook? <laughs> the The starting point is if you want to build an audience, don't focus on building an audience. I mean, the the fallacy that people have is if a gazillion people are following me, then I can do something. And that's really not how it works. How it works is you are consistently delivering something that's valuable to people and then they follow you as a result, right? And so, and and the other point is just because you have a big number of followers doesn't mean that they're the right kind of followers, right? It doesn't mean that they're the people most likely to then go buy a product or service, right? So if you start by going, I just want to build an audience. Well, if you build an audience around one thing and then you go and launch a product or service or business that is unrelated to that, those people aren't gonna convert. Right. So if you're just out here making memes, getting half a million followers, and then you're like, and here I'm starting a ghostwriting company, like there's going to be a mismatch. And so the whole key is you want to take a, this is like the biggest thing that we share with people in Ship 30, which is you want to take a data driven approach. The whole idea behind digital writing is that you've accelerated your feedback loop. So legacy world of writing, Hemingway sits down, he spends four years writing a novel, sells it to a publisher. He has to wait another 18 months for it to get published. Then he has to wait another 12 months for the magazine reviews to come out. And then he has to go to a pub down the street. And then he overhears some person being like, Hemingway's novel was terrible, right? That's the feedback loop. Whereas today, the feedback loop is I have an idea. I write a tweet, a thread, 
an atomic essay, a LinkedIn post, I publish it, and I get feedback three minutes later. And if you do that and you constantly take a data-driven approach, every time you write something, you should be learning, who is this resonating with? Is this something I want to keep writing about? Every time you see a breakout data point, you go, oh, maybe I should double down on that, right? And you just keep accelerating your niche over and over and over again. I'm sure as you've been making videos over the years, you started to recognize, oh, when I make this type of video, the chart goes up and to the right. Yep. And when I make this type of video, it flatlines or it goes down. Yep. And intuitively, you and every other creator goes, I'm going to keep doing the thing that's working. Right. And so what we try and educate people on is just make that decision conscious. Mm. Right. From the very beginning, notice what's working and you can accelerate your feedback loop and your growth curve by just doubling down on the winners and cutting the losers. Mm. Yeah, we get, we get this problem a lot in our, in our YouTube, of course, where people get so hung up on what's my niche. And I always try and like the way the way I describe it is like, you know, uh, uh, the architect approach versus the archaeologist approach, where it's like an architect has the plans for the whole house before they lay a single brick. Whereas an, whereas an archaeologist like kind of goes to one site, they do a bit of digging, oh, and then they go to another that's one, a great dig some more, dig, go to another site, and then are like, oh shit, I've struck some gold. They keep on excavating, they, they, they dig some more. And unless you are, for example, a uh, sort of in, in the world of YouTube, a kind of Matt Diavella where you've been making documentaries about documentaries on Netflix for 10 years, and you already know how to make a bang video, even then he did a lot of archaeologisting to get to his niche, or a Peter McKinnon where it's like, I've been a photographer, videographer for 10 years, and now I'm going to teach the thing. At that point, maybe it makes sense to sort of come in with like actively thinking like I'm going to stand out in the space of photography tutorials. But for most other people, especially while you're learning the craft and figuring things out, like you just got to throw loads of spaghetti at the wall, dig in loads of sites. And the ones that seem to stick, you double down on those and kind of keep your mind open. It's the way we we call this lean writing. So just you acknowledging that you are not the genius at the table right? Just create data points and double down on the winners. It always looks cleaner from the outside. Yeah. But what most people don't know, okay, so Ryan Holiday is a great example. Ryan Holiday was a marketer, right? And his first book was about marketing. And his second or third book, same thing, was about growth hacker marketing. Mm -hmm. Then he goes and writes this blog post for Tim Ferriss called Stoicism 101. And the blog post goes crazy and he gets all these emails and he gets all this feedback and data saying there's something interesting about this. So he goes, I'm going to double down on it. And he writes a book called The Obstacle is the Way. He even tells the story. He goes, I didn't get a very big advance for The Obstacle is the Way, right? Because it was new and it was an unproven data point. And the publisher goes, well, we're valuing you as a marketing writer and you want to write about this new thing. And now he's the best-selling, most well-known stoicism writer in the world, right? So it looks really clean from the outside. They're like, oh, you constructed this from the beginning. That's not true. He literally just created a data point, saw that it won, and doubled down on it. Yeah. Most people don't know the same thing about Mark Manson, yeah. <laughs> right? Mark Manson didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write this insanely amazing best-selling book, you know, Solar of Not Giving a Fuck, right? Yeah. But what happened is the publisher goes to him and goes, well, you have a big blog, you have a big audience, uh, you should write a book. He goes, great, what should it be about? They go, we don't know. What's your biggest, most viral blog post? He goes, well, it's a blog post called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? And what did he do? He just expanded the blog post into a book. There's so many examples of lean writing out in the world. And it's just from the outside, as consumers, we think it's this beautifully orchestrated, yeah. everything's perfect from the beginning. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the the other cool thing there is that 
even though Ryan Holiday and Mark Manson are like decamillionaires by this point from their various things, still most people have not heard of them. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, I was I was, I was at a dinner the other day and I just casually throw out the name Jordan Peterson and like half the people were like, who's that? I was like, what? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and when I mentioned Ryan Holiday, like amongst like normal people, like almost no one has heard of him. Yeah. And it's just like this guy's like stupidly successful and is like making tons and tons and tons of money doing the thing that he loves and working four hours a day and spending time with his family and his farm. Decamillionaire probably, and like most people haven't heard of him, which is like very like uh, a comforting thought that you don't actually need to be like Ed Sheeran levels of famous to to make loads of money and have a really successful career. I was gonna say there's there's a positive takeaway from that, which mm. is you don't need that many people. Paid newsletter, great example, right? You don't need that many people to start making six figures as a writer. You know, if you're self-publishing books, you don't need that many people buying your book for it to start being really profitable for you. So that's part of what I love. Again, no, no one educated me on that. I had to figure a lot of this out on my own. But what I love sharing with other writers is realizing that you don't need to be J.K. Rowling to live an awesome life. You know, you don't need to be this insanely best-selling, I smash all these records. Success is a lot easier if you just focus on a small number of people. Yep. Focusing on solving their problems, answering their questions, and using writing as the vehicle for scaling that information. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, cool, I want to get started with writing online. Um, and they might have come across the advice that I was actually peddling a few years ago of like, start a blog. How do you feel about starting a blog uh, <laughs> these days? <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite question. Um, blogging is the digital equivalent of being a legacy writer. You know, it's you think, again... What is a blog? It's your website. You think you're the important part. I, there's a saying I love repeating to uh, writers in Ship 30, which is you are not the main character of your story. The reader is the main character. Nice. I like that. And I'm going to steal that. The moment you realize that, you realize that you are in the business of serving the reader, right? That is literally what you are being paid to do. And so a blog it's like, well, what is that? It's the writer going, I'm super special. Here's my fonts. Here's my website. Here's my writings. Here's my color scheme. Here's my pictures, right? The reader doesn't care about any of that, point A. They care about what you can do for them. Point B is there's no distribution flywheel. So how is anyone going to find your writing? The only people who know your, about your website or your blog are your mom and your dog, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's you have no mechanism to get in front of readers. Where... I mean, I guess, I guess the kind of the thing people might be thinking if they're in legacy mode is, well, if I write enough, eventually either people will share it and, and quote, it'll go viral through sharing, or I'll get traffic through Google. Yeah. So okay. So again, <laughs> Sorry, I'm fe I'm feeding you base. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like a layup, right? So <laughs> yeah. what is traffic through Google? You know, the only way that you're going to rank, who's going to rank for productivity on Google? Is it going to be you, or is it going to be Forbes? Right? Or is it going to be Skillshare mm. or Udemy? Mm. Right? When Google is a search mechanism that businesses spend an insane amount of time, energy, and money to own, you are never going to outrank Udemy for productivity. Mm. It's just not going to happen. And most writers, again, this is where it's like you have to slow down and really understand what goal are you working toward. If you are, so the vast majority of writers, they sit down and they go, I want to write something. Okay. So you just want to write and then you want to reach certain people. Okay, great. What is SEO? SEO is the complete opposite of that. SEO is there's a search term and I want to own that search term. And I don't even care 
how the writing turns out. I just want to own that search term. Two completely different goals. So again, it's a fallacy where people go, if I just write on my blog, I'm going to rank on Google. You don't even know what that means. You're not going to rank. <laughs> what are you going to rank for? Right? So it's like, that's part of, I feel like I'm on this quest, you know, and I have to like walk, I have to run around with the flag and be like, like try and educate every writer, be like, what you were told is wrong. And let me explain to you why it's wrong and let me show you a different way. Mm. Because so many writers, it's not that they're not talented. It's just they either were taught to think about it the wrong way or, in my case, you're told you can't make a living as a writer. There's never been a better time in history to make a living as a writer. You just have to understand how to make money as a writer. Okay, so... Website is a no-go. Should, should, no. should you have a website so, at all? Like, well, so yeah. you can have a website and it's, I think it's fine to treat it as a, like, this is where my best work lives, you know? But again, don't be confused. It's going to be way easier for you to get millions of views on your writing if you're publishing on Twitter, LinkedIn, Quora, Medium, you know, anywhere that there's a social garden where lots of people are hanging out. The way that I like to explain it is, Think of it like you go to a party downtown in the city. And it's, we're, we're in London. There's a, there's a pub. And the pubs, there's people spilling out of the pub. You know, And it's an amazing time. And you walk up there and you're whispering into every person's ear and you're like, hey, I throw really great parties too. You should come back to my flat. Uh, trust me, it's amazing. Every time you show up with a blog post, that's what you're doing. You're like, hey, I throw really great parties too. And everyone's like, no, I want to stay at the pub. It's amazing mm -hmm. here, right? Everyone wants to stay in Twitter. Everyone wants to stay in LinkedIn. So you should be writing in the environment. And then sure, your site is where your best work can live, but that's not what's going to drive the result. Mm. Okay. So write on Twitter, write on LinkedIn. Am I just, okay, so let's say I'm writing on LinkedIn and I'm like, Okay, so firstly, how do, how do I decide? Twitter versus LinkedIn versus Quora versus Medium? I know this kind of changes over time, but right yeah, now, what's they, the snapshot? They go through different uh, peaks and valleys, but uh, both either are great. Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, I think, have the best distribution right now. Um, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter either or. I love when people go, I don't think my niche exists here. It's like, there's hundreds of millions of people on these platforms. It exists. It's just you haven't figured out yet how to reach people, hmm. which leads to the second question, fallacy, which then the person goes, yeah, but I can't reach them unless I have an audience. Hmm. Okay. Social platforms have changed. People don't understand how a social platform works. It doesn't matter if you have 100,000 followers or you have 10 followers. What happens every time you write something is a social platform feeds it to a small number of people. So it goes, we're going to show this to 25 people. And based on the ratio, based on the number of people in that small group that interact, if it is above the majority, we're going to show it to more people. And if it's below, we're not going to show it to as many people. So that's how you have someone who, you know, you, me, anyone who has a larger following, it doesn't matter if you have 100K followers. 100K people aren't seeing your content. The only way that it's getting distributed is if the thing that you wrote keeps crossing the next threshold where the platform goes, this is worth being shown to more people, which means everyone's on a level playing field. You don't need a huge audience. It's just about the quality of what you're creating. How do you figure out what to create? Like someone listening to this is like, oh, okay, so I, I guess I should I should write on Twitter. What what the hell am I going to write on Twitter or LinkedIn? So we have <laughs> a, there's a really great like beginner framework that we uh, share with people uh, right in the first week of Ship30, which we call for who, so that. So every time you sit down to write, who are you creating for? 
so that they can do what? Okay, so before you write a single word at the top of your page, you should write for who, so that. Okay, so for who, so this is writing advice for beginners so that they can outcome, 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 so that they can build an audience, accumulate tens of millions of views, make their first dollar online, right? And if you just start from the for who, so that over and over again, you're in great territory. And the thing that I is important to remind people is it's not that you make that decision once and then that's the only thing you can do. This is not a marriage decision, right? Seven years ago, I was writing about bodybuilding on the internet. Nobody cares now. That's fine. You can change over time. But if you start every single thing that you create with the for who, so that framework, then you can test different audiences, you can test different outcomes, and then you take that data-driven lean writing approach and you go, well, every time I write for who, so that here, it performs well. And every time I write for who, so that over here, it doesn't perform well. Well, what should you do? I'll double down on my winner, cut my loser, mm. right? And all of a sudden, it removes all this pressure of you have to sit down and be the genius in the room and go, what's your niche? Just let the data tell you, right? The data told Ryan Holiday, stoicism is where the opportunity is. The data told Mark Manson, hey, you know, life advice and the subtle art of not giving a fuck is where the opportunity is. Just follow the data. Yeah. Yeah, I guess at that point, people like a question that I often get is that... <clears throat> But what if I don't like what the data tells me? What mm. if, like, what if I don't want to pander, pander to the audience, kind of thing? And like, what if I actually do want to do all this other, these other things that I'm more interested in? You can do that. Yeah. You know, is like again, you have the freedom, and an important thing to remember is just because something performs well doesn't mean you have to do that. So I've written things that have gone viral. That then the next day I was like, that's cool, but that's not really what I want to write about. Mm. Okay, great. Push it to the side, create some new data points, see what happens, right? That's, again, it's not a marriage decision. You can keep experimenting. You can keep evolving. Yeah. I have a friend who is doing this kind of method with her YouTube channel, and she's kind of thrown some spaghetti at the wall, seen what sticks, double down on the stuff that sticks while still kind of doing a little bit more spaghetti throwing. Uh, and she had a video go viral on a topic that she didn't really, she was like, uh, I mean, the video's gone viral, but like, I actually don't think I want to make videos on that particular topic. But the concern is, have I, I, I have now gained an audience of like 10,000 people, an extra, like 25% of my subscriber count is now, has now come from that video. So therefore, like, am I kind of shooting myself in the foot by ignoring that, that segment of the market? And I guess I, I, I kind of had this quick problem when I, like a year into my YouTube channel, I made a video about how I take notes on my iPad Pro. And all of a sudden, half my subscribers were from that from that one video. And I was like, damn, I used to be a how to get into med school channel. And now I'm a freaking tech tech YouTuber. What the hell is going on there? And often found this struggle between like trying to imagine the mass of the audience and be like, oh, but like some of them are like kind of 13 year old girls doing their like school exams and wanting to learn how to study a bit harder and be motivated. And the other the 38 year old tech bro is wanting to learn about the latest iPad. What the mm. hell is going on? Like, how, how would you approach that kind of thing? Yeah, there's that's why so much of this is like being exposed to different ways of thinking, because these are all just decisions. One of the things that Cora taught me, and I love this framework, is the size of the question dictates the size of the audience. Mm, nice. So for example, how big is the audience of person who wants to get into med school? That is way smaller than 
the size of audience that goes, how can I improve my note-taking ability? Right. So the size of the question dictates the size of the audience. So when you see a data point, it's worth keeping in mind. Well, so like what's the category difference? Like, of course, personal development is always probably going to outperform something like how to get into med school or something that's more niche. And so that's why part of the data, and again, this is a, a big thing that we teach people in Ship 30, is part of the data is not more views equals better. Hmm. Right. It also, you have other data points like what are the quality of comments? Like I know every time I write personal development, I'm going to get more views and the comments are going to be like, nice, hmm. good one. This was really helpful. You know, whereas every time I write about ghostwriting or how to start a, a, a business by writing on the internet, yep. I'm going to get less views, yep. but I'm going to get way higher quality comments and people asking me questions. Yep. And again, you can do both. And so it's you have to like learn how to read the data and go, okay, well, this one's getting me more attention, but this one's getting me more engagement. You can have both, yeah. but which one is connected to your business? Yeah. Which one is driving the outcome that you want? Yeah. And I guess like almost a, th a third data point is how did you feel writing about those things? Totally. Like I don't care about talking about medical school admissions anymore, but I used to seven years ago when I made money off the back of that. Right. And now it's just like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Like, I guess like you don't really care to write about bodybuilding anymore. Exactly. Even if it maybe started to do well, you'd be like, hey, actually, I, I've this got different my thing. interests. In, yeah. yeah. And you have to... You want to do the thing. You're always going to be more successful when you do the thing that you actually want to do. So that's why, again, you kind of have to divorce yourself from the, well, just because it's getting more views doesn't mean that it's better. You know, what's I, I like thinking of it as which is connected to your business, mm. right? If if your business is like YouTube, although it changes with CPM and stuff, but like with YouTube, it's more views equals more money, mm. right? So. I would understand someone going, I want to optimize for views. Yeah. Mr. Beast makes very str strategic decisions to optimize for views, yeah. right? But if your business is, you know, I want to teach you how to start writing online or I want to teach you how to become a ghostwriter, mm. right? You actually don't care about views. Views is a pointless metric. I care whether people are engaging, commenting, what questions do they have? Mm. Am I answering the right questions? Am I moving those people into some sort of education that's going to help them? Yeah. Right, so you have to understand which metric and which lever is tied to the actual business that you're in. Yeah, and I guess when you, what do you do when you're starting out where you don't yet have that business? Data, you just test yeah. data points, right? Because what I always like paying attention to is, so views and and likes is kind of which way is the wind blowing? Is there interest in this direction or this direction? But comments are where you really start seeing what people need help with. Mm. So. One of the big things I like pointing out to people is if one person comments on your video with a question, the average person or the average creator just goes, oh, someone commented. And then they like walk away and do whatever. But that one question is your first potential customer. Hmm. DM them, talk to them, ask them, what do you need help with? And if you just start interacting with those people, they're literally going to tell you the business to build because they're literally saying, if you just solve this problem, I will give you money. What do you, I'm, I'm just throwing random questions at you here because this is great. Um, what do you think are like, um, okay, so if someone has a field of expertise, like you, I mean, at, the, at this point, you've been writing for 10 plus years. And so it's easy enough for you to give advice on writing. What if someone listening to this is maybe, I don't know, early 20s, just graduated university, started their first job and feels like I don't really have any skills. I don't really have any passions. I guess I, I go home and like watch TV, but like as everyone else does, like what, what like how do, how do I figure out what, but 
but they want to build this business on on the internet. And there's this sort of gap between like where they're at and seeing people who are experts allegedly sharing opinions on stuff where they feel like they don't have any expertise to share opinions on stuff. Mm. So uh, in Ship 30, we call this the two-year test, although it can also be the two-day test or two-hour test. You know, When you were in fourth grade, you didn't want to learn from people who were in college. People who were in college seemed like adults to you. You know, they seemed like your parents. Who you wanted to learn from was the fifth grader because you were like, hey, what's fifth grade like? You wanted to learn from the person who's just a little bit ahead of you. And so when you're thinking about things to share, you want to use this, two, we call it the two-year test, where it's what are all the things that you've learned over the past two years? What are all the experiences you've had? What are all the pivotal moments? What are the lessons, you know, the mistakes, the tips you would give, mm -hmm. right? And all you're doing is you are creating for the version of yourself two years ago. Yeah. You are the fifth grader telling the fourth grader, here's what you can expect, yeah. right? And if you just do that, that is the cure for imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is you trying to do the two-year test forward. You're like, I'm going to pretend I'm two years in the future. You're not there yet, right? Your ideal reader or viewer or listener is two years behind you or two hours behind you. What did you just learn how to do? Great. Turn around and pass it to the person who doesn't know how to do that thing yet. That's the easiest solution. Yeah, it's 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 great how a lot of the this stuff really converges on the YouTube advice as well. It's the same like, thing. Like like the thing I tell people is like if if you're struggling with your niche, figure out what have you learned in the last three years or five years or ten years, depending on how old you are, um, that you could potentially teach to someone who's in, who's in that position. And so even now, even though like with with me, I, I get emails from people in their thirties and forties and fifties and stuff, being like, or people coming up to the street of all ages, um, saying that your videos are helpful. I find it very hard to imagine what I could possibly say that would be useful to a 45-year-old with kids. Because it's like, what the hell do I know about productivity for people with kids? And I just, just still just imagine myself speaking to someone who's like 25. Mm -hmm. um, but there's that thing, I think, in, in 12 Immutable Laws of Marketing that the, the target is not the market. Like you can speak to one person, but actually your market could be a lot bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great sales copywriting adage, which is if you write something for everyone, you write something for no one. You know, you your goal is to write or create something that is so specific, it's universal to all the people that are like that person. So whenever you're thinking of, I want to build an audience, you shouldn't think of a mass of people. You should think of one person. Mm -hmm. What is their name? Where do they live? What problems do they have? What are they interested in? And if you're clear about that, you're going to attract all the other people who are like that person. But if you just think, I want to build an audience, you're in the mindset of, how do I get everyone? First of all, the more you try and get everyone, the more you get no one. Second of all, you don't need everyone. So what you were saying, you don't need Ed Sheeran level of success, right? You just need a thousand people. It's the famous essay, a thousand true fans, or Legion, I think was the one who wrote a hundred true fans, right? You just, you don't need as many people as you think. Yeah, it's like, um, I often, when when people ask about this niche thing, I there's a story that Tim Ferriss told where he was like, he he really struggled with writing the four-hour work week. And then he decided to write it in a Gmail compose window to like two of his friends. Exactly. That, that, that just made it so easier, <laughs> so much easier because it feels like you're writing to a single person rather than trying to imagine a, well, analytics tell me my audience is like 15 to 54 living in like the UK, the US, Australia, India, China. Yeah. China uh, like, uh, yeah. How do you even begin to imagine That's, that? That yeah. is exactly what Quora taught me is Quora was literally one person saying, I have this question. 
And what did Quora do? It scaled my answer to that one person's question to everyone else who had that question. Mm -hmm. So you would have Quora answers get millions and millions of views, but it started by answering one person's question and then the platform scaled it to everyone else. And Twitter's the same, LinkedIn's the same, Medium's the same. Every platform, YouTube's the same. You start with the one person's question and then the platform's responsible for distributing it, Mm, which is what your blog doesn't do. Yeah. Um, Importance of having your own email list, question mark. (laughs) So again, depends on what your goal is. Like you can have a successful freelance writing or ghostwriting business without an email list. Um, You can have a successful YouTube channel without an email list. But as soon as you start getting into productizing yourself, um, a paid newsletter is inherently a list uh, or like writing and selling a book you want to have some sort of list because you want to be able to reach those people directly. Mm. I think the biggest mistake authors make is they go, I'm going to set out to write a book and they have no attention engine. They have no social following. They have no email list. You need some way of interacting with readers because the book otherwise is just going to sit on the bookshelf with you know, millions and millions and millions of other titles. No one's just going to pluck your book off the shelf. Yeah, nice. So would it be a case of, like like again, let's say someone is someone is a total beginner to this. Would you recommend they start off like email list from day one and funnel people from their Twitter bio into the email list, or like try it out for a few years? And like, at, at what point yeah. would you start to think about the email list? The email list is an inflection point, and it's a decision after you've clarified your writing in social environments. So you've written consistently, you've generated a bunch of data points, you've learned what works, you have a clear understanding of who you're trying to reach and help, what questions they have. And then the newsletter is just the more of that, right? So social is the, I do it in X amount of words. I go into like a certain level of depth. The newsletter is I'm going to do that for the same type of person, just way more. And again, then you have the barbell decision. Am I saving you time or am I giving you expert level insight? And the reality is most people, especially when they're getting interested in something, you don't have the expert level insight. So go the other route, right? Curate, save people time, be the one who's researching. You are now getting compensated to learn and build your skills. And over time, if you want to, you can translate over to now I am an expert. Nice. To what extent can people quote like expect a growth on things like if we t- if we take Twitter, for example, you know, the thing I tell people for YouTube is do the th- one video every week for two years, and I guarantee that'll change your life, but I can't put any numbers on it. I can't tell you whether you'll get 10K, 100K, a million followers, or even if you'll get monetized at all, but I can just tell you it'll change your life. And that kind of more like long-term thinking without really being wedded to a particular outcome is at least how I approach the YouTube stuff. How, how do you think about that for, I guess, Twitter, LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, so if we really want to talk about it as a like hedge on your time, energy, and effort, the best the best measure for success in writing online is just thinking about building your library. So every time someone comes to you with a question, every time someone goes, hey, what do you think about X? Notice how often you repeat yourself. So when you go have a coffee meeting, how many times do you say the same tidbits about yourself? How many times do you explain, well, this is my thought process on making videos. This is how I think about solving these problems, right? Every time you're saying that, you are manually doing the work. Hmm. Writing online or making videos or having a podcast is your ability to scale that 
in the sense where now every time someone asks you that question, you don't have to repeat yourself. You go, I I already wrote about it over here. So remove the audience, remove the how many followers, remove the email list, remove the money. Even still, just creating things on the internet allows you to scale yourself digitally. So then the question just goes, do you think that there's benefit in scaling yourself on the internet? Everyone's going to go, well, yeah, of course there is. Because now you have a library that you can point to over and over and over again. That's like the greatest hedge on it all. It's not wasted time or effort. What sort of success stories have you seen from people that you know who have done the writing online thing? Oh, huge. I mean, we have tons coming out of Ship30 now where it's like they take the frameworks. We have so many people who have built audiences bigger than me on Twitter. That's best case scenario. I love seeing that because then that proves, hey, these things that we're teaching, they work. You just have to put them into place. And you know, we've had people get tens of millions of views, insanely viral Twitter threads, build audiences of 100K, 200K, 300K, launch their own products, start making money on the internet, made their first five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand. Like it all, it is all possible. But for me, the reason why like someone can build a bigger audience faster than me almost always has to do with the category they're playing in, Mm. right? So for me, if my business is writing education, I don't care if I have 50K followers or 100K or 200K. I care about what is the conversion rate of the number of people who come in, they learn about these frameworks, and then they come over and decide to participate in the business, right? If someone else goes, I want to write about personal finance or I want to write about personal development, you can easily build an audience 10 times bigger than me. And that's fine. But I hope that you connect it to a business that's related to that audience, right? So it all depends on what game you want to play and how are you measuring that Mm -hmm. success. But it's all of this stuff is, you know, when I was in school, my teachers, which I always found weird and ironic, but they always said, not everyone can become a writer. And I kind of sat in class and I was like, well, then why are we all here? And I think legacy writing has this elitism to it where it's like not everyone can do it and you have to suffer and you have to stack rejection letters and you know you're o- you only are rewarded if you're brilliant and like it's there's all this red tape. Yeah. And the world of digital writing now is anyone can become a writer. All of these skills are easy to learn and it's possible you just need to invest the time to learn some of these skills and put them into practice. Fantastic. Cole, thank you so much. I think this is a good place to, to end this. There, there is still so much to talk about, category design, your uh, Next time. Snow, snow leopards and all that kind of stuff, which I, I read recently, which is sick. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Where can people learn more about you? Where can people find you? Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest uh, uh, point now. Nicholas Cole 77. Um, my, see, I don't even point people to my website. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and uh, and if anyone wants to start writing online, take uh, the next cohort of Ship 30 for 30. Good stuff. And we'll put links to all of those in the video description. And perhaps you could even hook us up with a discount code or something for Ship 30. Nice. We'll put all of that in the video description and the show notes wherever you're watching or listening to this. So we'll definitely do a round two next time we're in the same geographical location again. Uh, I'm planning to visit the US sometime in the new year. So we'll, we'll hook up. Let me know. We'll get Dickie together. We'll do it in Miami. Oh, that'll be so good. Um, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks, man. Cheers.
All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are gonna be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.